Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Spooky Stacks. It's the first one of uh, 2022, our, our transitional episode into the Halloween season. Oh, so so we're starting... Sp- oh, yeah, this is going to be in October. That this this one's coming out in October, yeah. So this is not... Uh, th- these these particular movies are are sort of uh, adjacent. Uh, not really horror, but I, I feel like uh, we've got some true crime, which I, I, I think is That's a, type a good of transition point. Uh, and cult, it's a cult, uh, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we got a killer computer. We got, you know, uh, ancient aliens and stuff. Again, you know, we, they're, they're good transition points into the season. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's... It's not too far away from from horror. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this is Jay, as always. <laughs> Cryptkeeper Jay, I suppose. And the Shannonese Liberation Army will only ever talk about how much they hate fascist pigs. If they ever talk about anything else other than how they hate fascist pigs, it'll mean they don't hate fascist pigs. And they're not a true member of the struggle for the Shannonese Liberation Army. You're going to hear bougie a lot, just bourgeois, so bourgeois, bourgeois. Uh, Our first movie, this is Patty Hearst, the Paul Schrader-directed 1988 film uh, based on Patricia Hearst's own autobiography. Uh, You know, as it says on the poster, it's her story. Oh, okay. I didn't uh, I didn't realize it was an autobiography. Mm hmm. So it's very POV. <laughs> uh, so that? so I, I would have to say at the beginning that I don't really know much of anything about the real case. Like I, I've never it's not one I've looked into in any great detail or studied. So uh, we're just talking about the case as it is portrayed here, because uh, I, I think it may be controversial. You know, this I, is I could... her story. <laughs> yeah. I could see this being um, not necessarily the gospel truth of what happened, but it feels pretty real. And and just how much it reads as a cult uh, rings oh, yeah. true. It really rings true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it opens up with a voiceover where she's talking about how she lived a normal childhood even though, you know, she comes from this mega rich family. You know, she's the granddaughter of Citizen Kane, basically. <laughs> yeah, but doesn't everybody's grandparents uh, get played by Orson Welles in a prestige, uh, one of the greatest films of all time? Fuck, that happened to everyone. Yeah, uh, but but it's weird because she, she does say that, you know, she was not raised as a rich kid, just kind of went to regular public school and everything and like she recognizes that yeah she had money <laughs> that mm-hmm. she's overprivileged uh the the line uh privileged even overprivileged but not spoiled uh which seems yeah. hmm. reasonable i mean okay. it, I, she she went to regular schools so she's not in private schools doing oh yeah prep stuff and all of that and, you know just kind of living like a fairly regular person until until berkeley california february 4th 1974 we're we're seeing all the signups for clubs and groups in front of i guess uh berkeley uh the the, the u of c berkeley right yeah 
and it's kind of funny. There's Planned Parenthood and SDS, the Student Democratic Society, and there's just no one else. I, uh, and please go ahead. I don't actually know what those are. Well, I know what Planned Parenthood is, of course. And the SDS is just kind of like the first major like student uh, democratic organization, I guess. Okay. So it's a very important in the 60s. Right. Okay. I got you. Uh, so she's monologuing about her confidence that, you know, she's always a really confident person. Now she's a doer, not a thinker, uh, how social and outgoing she is. Uh, none of this that we ever really see about her in the movie. Well, she kind doesn't of, really get a chance to, uh, in, yeah. in her defense. Well, she she doesn't reflect any of the qualities that she describes here because she's just like totally broken down and rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Uh but but it, it's it's interesting to see her sort of give this description of herself that kind of never comes into play. Actually, yeah, yeah. Like, I forgot about the description because it doesn't come into play. So she says, yeah, of course, there is little one can do to prepare for the unknown. And then the score just goes, and the title shows up. Oh, yeah. So this, this whole uh, thing felt like... Uh, felt like a youtube video of just like like one of those compilation videos uh, set with like electronic music in the background mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like um what was it well, yeah it's it's mommy daddy mommy daddy who are you mommy daddy like just pounding 80s electro industrial yeah it's 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 kind of ridiculous the the score i didn't love for this movie it feels it, it's weird because it's so poppy and like happy and well it's uh, it's it's dance beady but like just bad synth horns a lot of that just really cheap shitty chintzy synth sound i didn't hate it um i, I didn't I hate all think of it, it didn't match the movie it didn't match. There are moments that I did think were really bad. I think I wrote one of them down in my notes at some point. Although this, like this opening thing with like party drums, it's it's <laughs> it's goofy with with over uh, a bunch of childhood pictures of Patricia Hearst. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's like, you know, we've got like these recorded voice clips, and it actually this theme song actually ruined one of the later things. Because, like, later on she says, who are you? And I'm like, ha I recognize that from the silly song. This is funny right, now. yeah. Which, Mommy, you know, it's Daddy. not funny. It's, it's so weird. It, it, it's a very strange off-key opening. But th- this is a strangely constructed movie. It, it is. I, I mean, this is Paul Schrader. Uh, he, he does a lot of biopics. But there's an extra on the disc. Uh, with an interview with him, and he mentions in it that this is one of only two movies he's done with a female lead character, and that if you've seen his other films, I could say that he doesn't really get women that much. (laughs) And if you've seen the other female-led film of his, I would describe it as arguably extremely misogynistic. Uh, Cat People? Have you seen Cat People? No, I've heard about it. Yeah, it's a... Messed up movie. Uh, and yeah, those are his two movies. This one and uh, Cat People are his only two movies with a female lead character, arguably. So it's it's not maybe... I, I feel like Natasha Richardson has a lot more uh, insight into the character and is bringing a lot more to it than arguably uh, Schrader did. 
Uh, you know, that's probably that's probably true. Uh, I, I feel like the direction mostly focused on like how mysterious the cult or the the army is in the beginning because you never really see what they look like when she's blindfolded. Yeah, I th- I think that's what he says in the interview as well as that uh, how abstract the opening was and how long she spends in closet land where it's just he he has to develop something to envision her imagination. Uh, to build like that whole first hour where she's just in a closet and you 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 have to get all of that stuff out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one evening, the Symbionese Liber- Liberation Army, the SLA, uh, burst into her. That's what it was. Yeah, the, Symbionese. Uh, so they burst into her apartment. That's not a real country, is it? No. Okay, good. Okay, good. Uh, it's 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 nothing. Uh, they they beat up her boyfriend and the neighbor comes around to uh, uh, put a stop to it as well. And he gets beat up. Uh, her her boyfriend runs off and one of them shoots at him. It's not clear if he's shot. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't. For I all mean, the I, guns that they have, I'm surprised at how much shooting or how much killing they don't do. Yeah, not a lot of it. They're, I mean, it, it seems to be against their ethos for the most part until really late in the end when they're sort of going off the rails, as right. cults tend to do. Yeah. When oh, Tico yes. is in charge, because Tico is hilarious. <laughs> it's a very Tico. funny character to me. Oh, man. He, he's he's like, if Tobias Fugue joined um, a gun cult. He's... Oh, he's he's embarrassing a lot of the time and it's intentional like i i do think maybe this is the big thing that trader brings to it is that like he is looking at it and like look at these jerks what a bunch of losers <laughs> oh, yeah. complete tools and uh, as soon as the blindfold comes off they look like fucking yeah they're, they're just they're losers they're so pathetic and lame but for the first while it seems like maybe they could be dangerous although it does seem very clear early on. It's like, this seems like a cult. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, keeping her locked up in the closet and only opening the door to shout, uh, to shout... Slogans. Slogans, yeah, that's what it is. To shout slogans at her. Well, yeah. And slamming the door. Well, and, and also just that it, it's so... Uh, it, it's like classical cult conditioning. They're separating her from everyone and they're slowly aligning themselves with her against the world. And it's the world that's a danger to her, not them. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, no, you're in trouble because your parents don't love you enough to agree to our reasonable demands. We're the good guys. We don't want to shoot you, but your parents are making us do it. Yeah. So, so they tie her up. Uh, they put her in the trunk of a car. Uh, and and they're pretty violent. They they hit her in the face with a rifle butt for screaming. Yeah. So like we we know they they are bad natured. Like they do have uh, a tendency toward violence right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and she's got this thing where like while she's in the trunk, they're praying that they don't bury her. Yeah. Um. Is sorry. Is, is she praying that they don't bury her? Yeah, she's like praying to God, like, please don't bury me, don't bury me. Uh, and I wonder that, if. Yeah, that does come up a few times. I wonder, like, if she's claustrophobic. 
Well, maybe. I don't, and I don't know. There's a movie from 1973 uh, that came out that I presume. Uh, yeah, no. So no, it came out after. Because uh, there's a movie called The Candy Snatchers where you know, a group of kidnappers kidnap this teenage girl and they bury her uh, to like hide her. Uh, and and then just shit goes wrong and she's just kind of left buried. Uh, oh, no. it, it's it's a really fucked up movie, very twisted, and it came out the same year as this. Or no, it was the year before the kidnapping, so maybe she had seen this movie and that's like a thing that was in her head. Could be, or or it could be just she can't imagine. Like maybe that's just the worst thing that she could imagine. Well, no, I think. Particular... I think it's based on a real thing that happened. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, the the kidnapping of Barbara Jane Mackey. Oh, okay. So there, this was another kidnapping where someone was kidnapped and, yeah, she was buried in a shallow trench in a fiberglass reinforced box. Oh. So I assume these things are running through her head. This There was also a couple TV movies about it. Certainly this was kind of a big... Uh, yeah, frightening thing. So yeah. Oh, that's that's actually terrifying. Yeah, uh, uh, Candy Snatchers, great movie, really twisted. Yeah. Um, well, what does happen to her is also terrifying. Yeah. Oh, I mean, legendary. <laughs> yeah. So they they switch cars. They they have this station wagon elsewhere, and she's like, "Who are you? What do you want?" Uh, and, yeah, and, this is oh, yeah, this is the part where the theme song worked against the movie because yeah, I yeah. just laughed at this line. Uh, but but one of the women says that she's worth more alive than dead. So like, don't don't worry because you know uh, you're you're worth a lot more to us alive. Yeah. So uh, she ends up in some dark basement room in the suburbs, I guess, uh, in San Francisco, I suppose it is. Yeah, for the longest time, I could not figure out where, well, where anything was in relation to anything, which I guess is part of the point. Well, yeah, because uh, we're not even supposed to uh, understand what the space is like. When we see her imagined version of the space that they live in, it's crazy. It looks like oh, something out of a music video. Yeah, it's and it's different every time, which is actually really cool, too. Mm-hmm. Well, again, this is what schrader wanted to do this is the only thing that was interesting to him about it i guess (laughs) so she's told not to make a sound uh if she wants to live and they put just like a radio in with her i guess to just constantly have noise and she's like don't touch the dial yeah uh, that's 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 another thing that famously cults will do to uh, break you down just have Put you in a room with music blaring that you can't do anything about. Well, yeah, just noise so you can't sleep and just something to constantly be uh, uh, aggravating to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we're introduced to Ving Rames, our uh, cult leader. Shit, uh, that's Ving Rames. That's Ving Rames. Sin Q. Oh, I did not recognize him at all. A leader of the SLA. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I love Ving Rames. He's uh wild in this movie he he really leans into him as just like charismatic cult leader guy who does not have an off switch no no i mean he he's genuine uh again where it's like benedetta last week he totally believes in his own bullshit but like he's a little deranged 
Oh, a bit. Um, yeah, he, he's every word that comes out of his mouth is related to the struggle, freeing our brothers. He doesn't have any dialogue. That's not a huge speech. Uh, one thing I really like about these parts, they're really short. Uh, or And they're, they, like, they're all these like brief sequences where it's just shot uh, with the silhouette of people in the doorframe. Mm-hmm. So like we, we only like her her only existence is just the darkness and the, there's a little bit of uh, carpet that you can see through the crack and then the the open door and someone coming in through the door frame to just rant about the bourgeois against her. Yeah, yeah. Like you are representative of everything that we hate, and fascist pigs. And yeah, she's a, a corporate enemy of the people. Uh, yeah. is what they call her. Uh, and, and they say that they plan to use her to exchange prisoners for two members who were captured. Which makes no sense because that doesn't end up being what their demands are. And there doesn't seem to be other captured prisoners. Well, I think they got out because that's um, or I think one of them got out because one of them is presumably uh, Wendy, who we see oh. much later when they go elsewhere but I like uh, Wendy she believes oh, yeah, in the cause, but she has chill she's the well, only one with chill Wendy's not there with the cult like she's just someone who actually believes in sort of a a, a sort of leftist revolution but she's not involved oh, right. in she's cult not. activities she's not doing bank robberies she's not having her eardrums pounded by Sinku every second yeah uh and and so she is detached from it and like she never really is in the same place with him ultimately mm-hmm. or at least in the movie as we see in the it. movie yeah yeah but like she's she's talking about how there's this other guy who she's waiting for who presumably is one of these people who is in jail okay but um, like they, they're not like a major terrorist organization oh but they are working hard to make it seem like they are yeah, they're they're pretending that they are, but like they started in 1973. <laughs> There's uh, like, like what ten of them, maybe. Yeah, they're they're pretending that they're they're uh, a lot more than that for a while here. Yeah, so like they're they're making up a war council that doesn't exist. Yeah. So uh, Sin Q comes in. He's ranting, and and this is where we have that cool one where it's a room that's just holes in all of like every wall is just a a sheet with a bunch of holes oh yeah like the walls are made of connect foreboard with like floodlights coming in and it looks like sinku is gonna start gonna drop the base he's got a shotgun Uh, there's one of the uh, uh, ladies with the sla also with a shotgun and he's like yeah she's one of five arrests that have been made of corporate enemies of the people which uh, is not true. <laughs> not true. I was going to say that. Uh, I forgot about him saying that because that doesn't turn into anything. They're pretending that there are at least four other cells doing the same thing with them. Uh, and, and they're saying, like, you're like Mar- Marie Antoinette. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then every time she asks a question, it's like, that sounds like something Marie Antoinette would say. And and they keep talking about how if the authorities show up that she's dead. And and their first thing is that like 
will shoot you if the authorities show up, but it slowly transforms into if the authorities show up, they'll shoot you because you're an embarrassment to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's important is you get no sense of how long she's been in this closet or how long it's been going on until like much, much later when somebody actually tells you how long it is. So Mm -hmm. it's just her whole life is just every randomly 30 seconds of ranting, uh, listening to ranting from beyond the door because She's hearing his rants as everybody else, and for who well, yeah, knows how long. That's what I'm saying. How like it, it's all these short little clips. It, it's it's a, a a lengthy montage of just her being indoctrinated without any real sense of time or place because she didn't have one. Yeah, yeah, a montage. That's that's the word. Yes. So um, what, one really of the effective. Thi- mm-hmm. what, one of the things they do that. It seems really ridiculous to me. It's like she wants to, she asks to go to the bathroom and uh, one of them is like, you got to say I have to pee or I have to shit because that's how poor people talk and you need to learn to talk like poor people. It's like you're not a poor person. You're clearly an upper class person who's a fucking weirdo about this. <laughs> I believe this is Tico. I wish I was fucking black, man. I yeah. wish I was oh, black. Man, he is. So embarrassing. But yeah, that that's him. Like, you know, that's how poor people talk. And like, you've never met a real poor person, have you? You're, uh, <laughs> no. Weird, gross dude. So they, they start to educate slash indoctrinate her uh, regarding the SLA. And they, they have all this stuff about how big and successful they are. And like, oh, yeah, we've got wings in South Africa and, you know, in, in other countries. Yeah, so since I had no like historical knowledge of the Patty Hearst case, I'm just watching this and it's working on me because I'm thinking, how come I haven't heard of the SLA then? <laughs> See, I knew this. And I was like, hmm, at what point is it going to drop that there's just them? And uh, at that point, like, is, is it going to crumble for her? And it, it kind of surprisingly doesn't entirely. No, because... I think they drop it at just the right time. I guess so. Like, she she really has to buy into it before they tell her. Uh-huh. And and they, they seem to think, like, she knows something. Because, like, why was your father in D.C. the night you were arrested? And it's like, why would she even know why her father was in Washington for something? Well, it's it's, you know, it's that thing. It's like... You were in proximity to this person, so clearly you're responsible for their actions. And yeah, clearly well, you know all about it. Well, it's it's completely the QAnon thing. They're they're doing the same sort of cult stuff where it's. Just, oh my God! It is QAnon. Yeah, they're just like, well, you you obviously know, you know, tell us the truth about Pizzagate, right? Oh yeah. And they 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 tell her so the the prisoner exchange that they planned on it got screwed up by Reagan. Because he's the governor of California at this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For Reagan, meanwhile, is like prisoner. What? Yeah, what are you talking about? Uh, and they they've made this new demand, and this was a real one. I know this was a thing that they this was the actual demand they made. They wanted seventy dollars for every poor person in the state, uh, for use for free food. Yeah. So. This would come to about $400 million. 
uh, which Hearst did not have. <laughs> like that's, that's oh, still so more one than... person was supposed to provide that, not the government. Wow. No, her dad. Her dad is supposed to do this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that and, sounds like something Citizen Kane would do. Well, it's not him. It's it's the son of. Oh, right. 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 Randolph Hearst rather than William Randolph. Uh, so uh, uh, they they make her record a message to her father to sort of say that, you know, she's OK and everything and to that she agrees and she wants him to pay the $70 for every poor person, that it's a just cause. I am not being beaten or coerced to say this message in (laughs) any way. Yeah. Um, These are my words, not stuff that they wrote for me. Yeah. So Hearst, obviously, he makes a counteroffer. Can't do the other thing that's not viable, uh, which they don't... uh, They're not cool with it. I, I think it's something like... They're giving a four million dollar donation for the poor, which again yeah. is like, like there's just no way that they can do what <laughs> uh, <laughs> they want them to do. It's like, look, we'll, a good faith thing. We are going to donate four million dollars. Yeah, you know that that is such a ridiculous request, the seventy bucks, because one, it's logistically impossible for one guy to do it, and two, that seventy bucks will be gone in like three days. Yeah, it's it's so minuscule. It's really it's it's symbolic, but like symbolic in a stupid and huge way, where it's just like, I, I, what did you think was going to happen? Like, they're it's such blue sky nonsense choices. Uh-huh. And it's it's like the Manson family. It's the kind of shit that they were dreaming up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's like it's like that whole what could a banana cost? Ten cents. like like the opposite of right yeah so uh one thing notable is that the news mentions sin q and they give his real name uh uh which is what was it uh william uh donald defreeze and they're like holy shit we didn't know that they knew him (laughs) knew who he was they they know who you are so he has to make a statement yeah it's like no, no, they know who they are, who I am because I'm. They're afraid of me. So, like, he he makes a tape to send to them, uh, of like, you know, the the SLA's uh, demands and and everything, and then at the end he puts on "Way Back Home" by the Crusaders and everyone dance and starts undressing, <laughs> <laughs> which they kind of seem to be a sex cult. There's a part where someone goes like, we're definitely not a sex cult while rolling up a shipping chart, but they're, they kind of feel like a sex cult to me. I don't know. There is, they only ever talk about killing fascist pigs, but they only ever do sex. Yeah. Like we don't see a lot of it and it's not talked. Well, it is talked about a heck of a lot, but it's, it's like you, you sort of wonder if all of the stuff that she's imagining when she's in there are wrong and like mostly it's just them fucking out there while she's in the closet that that kind of seems more likely yeah given what we hear (laughs) (laughs) and given what we see later on when the blindfolds come off yeah i mean like it it seems so much like the manson cult or you know a leftist version of the of QAnon, where they just have these very elaborate conspiracy theories about how uh, like their their connection to reality is so thin. They they just don't seem to understand how anything works in the real world. They're clearly rich kids cosplaying as poor kids. 
Two? <laughs> and it's and in at least one case, white kids cosplaying as black kids. <laughs> oh wow. When he is in the blackface, astonishing. I cannot believe he uh he went into blackface. So like the the there's the one girl who is kind of nicer to her, Jelena. Uh played by Dana Delaney, really uh, well-known TV actress. You've probably seen her in lots of stuff. And and she's talking about how, oh, I mean, we all come from pretty good homes. Uh, my parents were Goldwater Republicans. <laughs> or no, no, I think that's the, I think it's actually Gabby who's telling her that. Because I, I think she's the one with the really bad white girl dreads and she's wearing the red balaclava all the time. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I think it's her that says that her parents are Goldwater Republicans. Uh, and she says, the SLA's my real family. The SLA saved my life, which that sure sounds like cult speak to me. Yeah. Yeah. They opened my eyes. Now I'm not a bourgeois. Now I'm not a fascist pig bourgeois anymore. Yeah. It's, it's the idea of a political cell as a cult more than an actual political or terrorist organization or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So they, they have her record another message, and this is the first time they unblindfold her, which was kind of interesting. Is this like where she sees them all for the first time? Not quite. I, I think she's just unblindfolded so that she can record a message and like feel a little bit more comfortable. I think she's still in the closet for this one. Oh, yeah. Well, she has to be able to read what they wrote for her that are her own words. Yeah. So she she talks about how depressing it is to be talked about like she's dead. Yeah, it's like, hey, guys, um, I'm, I'm, I am still alive. I would just like to remind you that. Yeah. And like I pretty much just exist through the radio and it, it sucks to just constantly hear these reports talking about how I'm this dead person. It's really starting to worry me because they're all saying that like, you know, the FBI, they already consider you dead. So they're going to just come in here and kill you so they don't have to deal with any of the fallout from it, which in the long run kind of almost feels weirdly true, but not like they, they didn't mean it to be like, yeah, no, it's almost what happens. Well, it, 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 she is so inconvenient as a survivor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And SinQ has changed the narrative at this point. It's like the, the FBI is going to turn up and they'll shoot her to blame it on them so that they can really take down the SLA. And it's like, don't you get it? We're the only ones trying to keep you alive. Maybe we should teach you how to defend yourself. <laughs> they give her a shotgun to defend herself. <laughs> yeah. Which is starting to get strange. Yeah. Uh, well, at this point, they must figure that it's like, hey, we've got her now. We we can give her a shotgun and it'll be fine. She's broken well, enough. It, it's the classic cult honeymoon phase, right? Because they, they all start being really nice to her. They start co- complimenting her. Uh, th- this is where we have one of them, like, brushing her hair and saying how uh, pretty her hair is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think this is Jelena, and she's also like, uh, so genes aren't allowed uh, because they don't instill respect in the people, according to uh, SinQ. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Which, again, like, this feels like a culty sort of thing. Like, oh, yeah, no, uh, in our cult, no one is allowed to wear jeans. They're not respectable. Uh, but it, we it, have if, to wear the Nikes. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it feels like a Shoko Asahara thing. It feels like oh, a yeah. Marshall Applewhite thing. <laughs> uh, and and she's like, you know, everyone in the cell feels much closer to you now. And this sequence is so on the nose because, like, she's leaning in and saying all this stuff. And she's literally grooming her, combing her hair. Yeah. You know? And she's like, it must be lonely. Don't you ever get sexual urges <laughs> don't you, you know Cujo wants to get it on with you and like oh boy oh, Cujo, no. <laughs> Cujo. <That's> not... <laughs> mm. <laughs> I didn't know who that was but either way it's not a good thing Cujo's the one who is he, he seems like kind of an incel oh he's always like I'm gonna be Che Guevara yeah that's the guy <laughs> I, I couldn't figure out which of the two dudes was worse. And they both, they, they both suck. They're both pretty bad. I, I think Tika was ultimately comically worse, but uh, yeah, they, they've both got some big problems. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe that's just because we see more of him. Maybe. Although early on, I was laughing at him a lot more. Well, yeah. <laughs> come on. I want to be black. That scene. Uh, there, there's a sequence where they're all doing push-ups shirtless. Uh, Patty's the only one who has a shirt, but she also can't do push-ups. So she's just kind of lying there struggling on the ground while the rest of them do shirtless push-ups. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it, it immediately flashed to a Christmas story for me. Like, Patty lay there like a slug. It was her only defense. <laughs> <laughs> This is a sequence where just really trashy, loud synthesizer horns. Like it's it's my least favorite synth sound is just really cheap synth horns. It, it always just like oh, grates on my ears. So this is where they give her the ultimatum that she can join them or die. Yeah, well, this is first. Don't yeah, they say? Or no, no it's, it's time, later on where they say. That's later. Yeah, okay. First time it's join or die, and also. You know, sex is a revolutionary act, and, you know, so you can't really say no because you got to be a revolutionary. Yeah. Yes, you know, yeah. so. mm. you could fuck anyone here if you want to, but what it really means is we all get to fuck you. Anyone gets to choice. fuck you, and you, you have to say yes because it's just comradely, you know? So, Patty and voiceover, never examine your feelings. They're no help at all. That's bad advice. It's pretty bad advice. Uh, it's they, real bad of, advice. She doesn't seem to be in a good place here. Uh, I, I no, don't know I where... think uh, I, I don't think these guys are actually very good friends. No, but like her, the, the examining her feelings. I wonder what level perspective that's supposed to be at. Is that her writing the autobiography, saying like, no, don't examine your feelings. That's unhealthy and dangerous. Or is that supposed to be her in the moment? Because if it's her later. That raises further questions. Yeah. About <laughs> the story yeah, line. good point, because th that's in voiceover, so it's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, so much of her stuff is voiceover. Although maybe it could be like what she's saying, like in her statements after she's been arrested rather than when she's writing the thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's unattributed, so it's really hard to say, because all of this is sort of just a whole weird area where she has no sense of time or space either. Mm -hmm. uh, but here is where they go to their second hideout. They they pile into the station wagon, put her in a trash bin, uh, and they move her to a new closet. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! 
And like, she's just a, please just shoot me now. I, I don't want to do this anymore. But when they get to the new apartment, this is when Sin Q offers join or go home. But there's like this inherent threat in the go home. Yeah, this whole thing about we'll set you free. We'll set you wink, free. Wink, nudge, yeah. nudge. And you and she will never have to worry about anything again. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And and she flashes back to the join or die like two scenes earlier. And it's like, yeah. uh, I guess I'll join you then. She's like I, imagining herself being buried again. Yeah. It's like, I definitely want to fight for the people. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I totally believe in the struggle against the, the whatever pigs. Yeah. This is where they have that really hilarious interview process for her <laughs> joining their cell <laughs> yeah. like okay so everyone against us is a pig <laughs> no everyone who disagrees in any way is a pig uh, also killing makes the government more repressive so that forces people to be more revolutionary so killing is good yeah always kill always kill pigs um, oh, there was another one. It's it's th those are the main things, and yeah. they're like, "What do you bring to the cult?" She's like, "I know the enemy. I'm the expert." Which is funny because they're all rich kids too. Probably more, most of them are maybe more rich kitty than her because she seems to have like actually grown up with normal kids. These guys do not seem to have. <laughs> I, I think Tico like lived in his bedroom in his parents mansion before he finally went to college for one day and then became this well, and that's Kujo, what i feel oh yeah he he does not seem like i mean we, we could probably find out but i i have no idea how much this tracks with the real person but the way he's yeah. portrayed here yeah he feels very insular so they they rename her tanya it's day 57 of her captivity and yeah, so they, she's been dealing with this for 60 days, for two months almost. Two months, two months. Uh, so it's uh, like April now because they kidnapped her in February. Mm -hmm. And she finally has the blindfold removed and she gets to meet the gang. <laughs> oh, my God, you're all so attractive compared to the fact that I haven't seen any human beings in two months. Although they are all kind of like good looking rich kids, too. Yeah, I guess. But that's sort of the thing. They they are all meant like that. That's why they were selected, you know, so they'd look good on the news. Mm. It, it was a very media savvy uh, setup. And the, so there's Jelena, the one who groomed her and gave all the sex talks. Yeah. And she's not done with that. <laughs> no, no. Uh, Fahiza, the one with the white girl dreads. Yeah. Uh, there's Zoya and Gabby, who used to be a couple, but now they're just, I mean, we'll get into the shipping chart later, I guess. <laughs> uh, I don't want to examine it too closely. No, I, I don't. I didn't write too much of it down, actually. But, and there's Cujo, of course. And then there's Tico and Yolanda, who are a married couple. Uh, they're they're actually named William and something Harris. Yeah, I can't remember the other uh, Yolanda. I can't remember her real name, but yeah, I, I think it's William and Emily Harris or something. Something like that. Yeah, it, it's weird when they're talking about him in the court seats because they're like, now what did Mr. Wolf? And I'm like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> well, that that's Cujo. That Willie would make Wolf. sense. Yeah. 
Uh, so they they are planning to rob a bank, but they're they're calling it a bakery because that's where all the bread is. You know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so cool. Uh, and this is where like they have just we we have another montage of just them having shitty conversations about how everyone's bougie and I'm more revolutionary than you kind of bullshit. <laughs> And only a black person can lead the revolution. Only a black person can lead the revolution. Uh, and just them always arguing about how, you know, you're being bougie. You're more, you're, I'm being so much more revolutionary than you right now. Uh, and this is where we have Tico screaming in the mirror about how he wishes he was black. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so, so, so sad. Like, just the way he does it. Like, like it's, it's not... It's totally authentic. Like, he is not playing it up. He's just angrily, oh, I wish I was black. Incredible. And, and like, that same, but, like, in that same tone where, like, like a kid would would say to his mom, I wish I was dead because he can't, yes. uh, because he can't play his computer games or whatever. Yeah, it's very tantrum-y. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so they, they do all of their posing for photos. They they get all their guns and they pose in front of the the Symbionese Liber- Liberation Army symbol, which is the Naga, seven-headed cobra. Yep. These guys just need, they need a Destro or a Baroness, even like a Serpent or a Dr. Mindbender would do. <laughs> like the problem is they've only got Cobra Commander and they it just Cobra Commander is not going to bring them where they need to be. <laughs> no. You need a Destro to balance him out, or a Serpentor to inspire them more. I mean, I guess he's kind of a Serpentor. <laughs> it's like it's like Shredder without the Krang. Yeah. So they they finally reveal as they're prepping for the robbery. It's like, well, what couldn't we call in one of the other cells? Well, so we may have made a little bit of a fib. <laughs> a funny thing about that. It's just, it's just us, us, baby. We're the whole SLA. And here, I like, there's such a great shot of her reacting to it that's sort of like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, like, not giving a whole lot away, but just like, this is, huh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> like, her kind of processing a whole lot of things, like, was this all, wait, <laughs> hold on. But Have now she's. Is- yeah. Now she's trapped. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so now she records her manifesto tape that she's Tanya, and like she's a part of the Symbionese Liberation Army. And you're gonna not gonna come in here and kill us and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- there's this <laughs> a line that I found really funny where she mentions that Yolanda kissed her on the mouth and she's just really weirded out about it. <laughs> like I don't know what's going on anymore. Everything's strange. <laughs> Uh, and it, it becomes growingly obvious that Sin-Q is extremely dangerously paranoid. Like, he seems to think he's being gang-stalked by the police. Yeah. Because um, he seems everyone, he seems to think everyone is secretly a policeman. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I thought that was just, like, when they called everyone a fascist pig, I thought that was just them, their word for the bourgeoisie, but no... Yeah, he seems to think they're all cops undercover. Like, I think it's a bit these of two both. Guys, yeah, like two guys walking down the street is like, I bet those two are cops. Look, yeah. they're undercover. They're not real people. 
yeah, he's like, oh, they're they're it's is you know the cops pretend to be gay guys, you know, and then like get close together, and that's how they spy. And also, the FBI can watch you through the TV, so you gotta unplug it at night. Yeah, and I like this because I just see Patty like taking in what he says <laughs> and choosing not to react. This is a whole series of her having notions torn down about what she's seen about, like, what she's imagined their organization to be as she's been trapped in the closet and slowly it being dismantled to be a very small and sad organization. Uh, What did you call it in the chat? Like, Scooby-Doo terrorists. Scooby-Doo terrorists, yeah. And it, it really shows just how cults rely on people's lack of knowledge and exploit them. Because, like... Yeah. The, the FBI thing, like, oh, you, you have to turn it off at night because they can look in. Like, again, this seems like a exactly like a Q thing. Like, oh, you, you got <laughs> to tape uh, over your camera uh, on your oh, computer yeah, at night. Right. Hmm. This is where Tico cosplays as a black person. <laughs> <laughs> cosplays. He's wearing blackface. He is wearing blackface, but he also puts on just a really absurd outfit and he's like, trying to talk jive it's he's got so an embarrassing wig. Oh. He, he puts on a wig yeah he's like in the bathroom mirror and oh man at like at this point they start doing these drills in their uniforms with guns in the apartment it's kind of almost funny and adorable they they've become laughable so quickly <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, as soon as you uh, take the mysticism away, you find out that these guys are just fucking losers. It becomes so comic. Like, you're watching them and it's like, this is silly. These people are so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they go to rob the bank and or, she's supposed to rehearse this line that she has to say perfectly. And if you don't say it right, we're going to shoot you. Oh, yeah, right. And. She gets there and is like, oh, I'm, yeah, she, uh, I, I'm pa- Patty Hearst. <laughs> you might yeah. have uh, heard of me. Yeah. So the, what she's supposed to say is this is not a robbery, but an expropriation of funds for the SLA, which is at war with the United States. Yeah. And and yeah, they, they pull up to Hibernia Savings. And Sinq is like, you better say it right, bitch. I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> and... Interestingly shot because we see it sort of styled after security cam footage where it's like oh, jumpy. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. thought that was really kind of cool. It's interesting. So they come in, hold up the bank. Sin Q yells that she is Patty Hearst because she <laughs> just doesn't know how to start things. She's not very assertive. Yeah, and she's like, oh, yeah, that that's me. I'm, I'm Patty Hearst. Yeah. And two people start to come into the bank and they shoot at them and then they all run. And I don't think they shot, like, I don't think anyone actually got killed here. It's a later bank robbery that someone gets shot at, like, gets mm-hmm. actually killed. And them just celebrating with the money and how famous they all are that, you know, this is the first job they've pulled and they're on the radio. Yeah, she's like, I'm sorry, I didn't say it right. He's like, it's okay, it all worked. <laughs> they, they're, they like, throwing the money around and rolling around in it because yeah. you know, they're kids. Oh, yeah, they're Scrooge McDucking. Yeah. This is also where Cujo has his thing about how he sees himself as Che Guevara and Sin as Fidel. Yeah, and, and you're Tanya, which is the name of Che Guevara's wife, so, you know, we should get married. Yeah, we'll, we'll kill lots of pigs together, I promise. <laughs> how did it end for Che Guevara? 
heard uh, not so great. Didn't didn't go the best for him. That famous picture of him was taken post mortem. Oh, I didn't <laughs> know that. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll we'll have to watch sometime the Benicio del Toro biopic of him. It's very good. Ooh, long, yeah, but very I very bet. good. Finally, Tico and Yolanda are trying to do the more bougie than thou shit, like trying to like get on Patty's case about it in Sinku finally. Just, Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm sick of this shit. <laughs> and and the, they're starting to like, okay, we, we need to move to LA because we're we're not really doing enough here in San Francisco. We have a bit of, we have enough money to move now. Let's start a recruitment drive. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> the recruitment. And I, since, I always kind of wonder how this works. Like, how do they find people? Yeah, because they kind of ultimately don't, right? Because he goes out and he brings back, like, a, a whole group of black Muslims. Yeah, they seem more interested in the fact that it's just like that they're the guys who kidnapped Patty Hearst than the, yeah. anything that the SLA actually stands for or does. Yeah, and and they're just like, oh, this is interesting. I kind of see what your politics are. And it's like, okay, you do seem to be more or less aligned with this, but uh, you're also out of control. <laughs> yeah. And and he's like, we these guys can't join us anyways because this is a white unit. Like, suggesting that they're telling them as well that they've got all these other cells. Oh, oh interesting. Right? Uh, and then everyone puts on blackface and goes to L.A. <laughs> Their disguises that they wear, it's like they just went to Value Village and grabbed whatever was hanging on the rack. It's not the best. They're all, yeah, they, they look very absurd. They're all wearing blackface, and they, they pile into their Scooby van, the VW. It's a real Scooby van. But yeah, their outfits are like one step away from the ridiculous gangster outfits in New York Ninja. Very similar, yeah. <laughs> so she, unfortunately, is stuck with Yolanda and Tico, and they just bicker and argue. Uh, we, we've kind of passed it. Like, we passed the point where she was talking with Jelena about the shipping, where, where she's going is like, well, uh, uh, will you, uh, Tico and Yolanda are were married before they entered the cult, but, you know, they're not married anymore because marriage is no longer official in by cult law, basically, right? Yeah, it's too bougie. Too bougie. Uh, so... Yolanda isn't really interested in Tico anymore, and I don't think anyone's interested in Tico. I, I think she says that Cujo is a virgin or Cujo something like that. Cujo mostly masturbates. Cujo mostly masturbates. Uh, everyone gets with uh, Sinkyu, I think. Yeah. But, uh, you know, she's the main piece. She's the main piece. Zoya and Gabby used to be a couple, but now I think Zoya is with someone else, and Gabby is just kind of on her own, and so she's frustrated. And I'm just thinking back to, like, the ten pages of explaining troll romance in Homestuck that culminates yeah. in this ridiculous, like, animated gif of the shipping chart just collapsing into itself. Right. It, it feels like there should be a whole chart that she's, like, rolling up at the end of it, and then she's, like, just such a brilliant capper, and he's like, but, you know, sex isn't important to us. <laughs> like they've got like a Pepe Silva board for who gets to fuck who. Uh but yeah, so like Yolanda and Tico, they just 
they're constantly at each other. They they clearly were not happy in their marriage and they're just weird people who this was a better route for them than continuing to be married, I guess. Well, this is probably about the only thing that Tico can even sort of do. Seems to be. So they arrive in Los Angeles. Uh, they give the date May 9th, 1974. Yeah, so we're getting close to three months now, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they've got just this slum house. Uh, no gas or electricity. And one of them's like, yeah, we're finally poor. Which, again, just this fetishization of poverty and one that they clearly don't understand or have any relationship to. Yeah. Um, see, the whole point of a real revolution against capitalism is to lift everyone up, not bring yourselves down. It's it's very absurd, but like she notably Patty is starting to get really good at the gun drills. Mm-hmm. And Sin Q is having holy visions now. Like he actually says, I am a prophet. <laughs> oh yeah he's like gone completely off the deep end he's like i have a vision we don't do safe houses anymore every night we break into a new house and we take that for oh never sleeping in the same house twice it's like no that will absolutely not work yeah he's like oh the revolution's happening so fast everyone around us has already fallen into line this, this is working right now they believe in us they hear our message and they are on our side which is just deranged because like nobody is doing that, but like they have some radio fame and you know, he's kind of just like uh, worked it uh, into the delusion. Yeah. And like the ain't nobody got time for that lady is like, Hey, I, (laughs) I like having a little bit of extra money for groceries. Yeah. So Tico and Yolanda roll up to Mel's sporting goods. An important moment. Patty stays in the van. Uh, and yeah, because she'll fuck it up. You're definitely they, they, fuck it up. They they have not accepted her. They don't like her. Yeah, um, they're really mean spirited. The two of them are the worst. Yeah, which is unfortunate because they're the only ones going to be left real soon. Yeah. Uh, so Tico tries to shoplift some shit, and a guard tries to arrest him outside. And Patty shoots at the guard. Well, she just kind of shoots at the air, and everybody gets away. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're driving away and Yolanda tells him off for shoplifting. He's like, God damn it. I was already paying for this other shit. What the hell did you want to do screwing it up for that? We we have too much heat on us already. I wanted to stick it to the man, man. Paying for shit is bougie. We got to like yeah. every waking moment has to be. <laughs> and Yolanda's like, look, we still have to like live. Yeah, we still have to exist. And like he's just like the worst ad busters reading 14 year old in in like middle school yeah so they 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 have this sequence where they're trying to borrow someone's car comrade (laughs) and you know they they show with two guns and it's like we're we're just gonna borrow your car yeah the first guy like like, they can't the guy's too scared he can't they can't get the keys from him because he's too scared to hand it over so they just walk across the street like hey man i'm gonna take your car and they're like, oh, oh shit. Um, oh, okay, and I don't don't mess with us. And they're, they're driving away like, huh, oh, that, that was so great. The people are with us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then they get like a few blocks away and Tico's like, fuck, I left my gun at the store. Just, yeah. Yolanda's like, are you fucking kidding me? That gun is in my name. I, like I bought that when we were married. <laughs> 
I half expected them to go back and get it because that's just the kind of idiots they are. Well, I, they may have been, but they run out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> and Those fucking people with their car, man, giving well, ripping us off like this. I notably Tico curses them out as goddamn chicanos. He is racist. He's racist oh, yes, towards everyone except black people. Which is another kind of a racist thing in and of itself. Just like super white guilt thing. Yep. So they take a test drive with the dude who's selling his car. He he's got a van for sale. And he's all starstruck. <laughs> It's like, oh my god, you're you're Patty Hearst. This is the SLA. Holy shit. Oh man, this is so cool, man. I, I hate fascist pigs too, or whatever you're saying. He's like, yeah, oh, cool. I'm meeting famous people. Patty Hearst. And he, you know, he gets a hacksaw, he removes Tico's cuffs. Patty gives him a kiss. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, call me. <laughs> you can keep the van, man, but you know, yeah. maybe we could hook up sometime. But then they get back to find that police have surrounded the safe house on 84th Street where everybody else is. Uh, it doesn't go good for them. No. So they, they get into a motel and they watch the shootout on TV. And like it was a pretty foregone conclusion, as they say on the news, like, well, everyone in the neighborhood knew they were there. They weren't hiding their presence. Like this is going from his revelation. Like, wait, we don't need safe houses anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's like, um, yeah, we were able to find them by uh, just listening to the screaming of prophecies into the sky. And just like, oh, I mean, it, we, they were doing things in the neighborhood. People had seen them steal cars. They'd seen them do this stuff. And like, it, it, they were pretty much just there. And they were making claims over radios <laughs> intentionally to be overheard that they have more ammunition than the police. Yeah, which... Um, Stupid idea. It was ridiculous then and is impossible now. But Nobody like, has more ammo than the police. No, but also it's like, how do you want to get Waco'd, right? And, and that's, that's exactly what <laughs> yeah, happens. That's exactly there. what happens. Well, you Fucking know, this is, Waco didn't happen yet, so. Yeah, you know, they, they set the precedent. They get burnt down. Uh, everybody dies. The, the yeah. entire SLA other than these two uh, and Patty are taken out. And, uh, yeah, Tico's got his whole, no, no. <laughs> but it, it's weird because it plays into the SLA's narrative for Patty because they just burnt the place down and killed everyone. And they made no attempt to, like, go in and rescue her, even though they figured that she was in there. Yeah, and she's like, uh, if I was there, they wouldn't have rescued me. They would have killed me. And she kind of goes a little catatonic. It's like, wait. I, I was starting to think this was all bullshit because these people are pathetic, but they were kind of right. Yeah. So she sticks with them quite a bit longer. They take her back to San Francisco. Tico's like, you're now Frank, Eva, and your name's Pearl. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why? He's like, just shut up and do what I say. We, we need we need a fake name for our fake names. Because they know her previous fake names. It's so ridiculous. And and they make her record another manifesto tape about their nobly, nobly martyred six slain comrades. Mm. And this yeah. is where they have that weird sort of pastoral interlude where they go to Pennsylvania. It, and we meet Wendy. Uh, this just reminded me of the, the bit in the Ninja Turtles movie where they're on the farm. Totally. 
totally. <laughs> uh, Tico continues to just be constantly obnoxious, but I really like Wendy here. Wendy rules, like I was saying before, she believes in the cause, but she's not like consumed by it. Yeah. We stopped bombing because we were going to get caught, you idiot. Yeah, and, and like Tico is so incapable of seeing around himself in any sort of way. So like he's being very openly racist because Wendy is an Oriental. So an Oriental sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. I mean, that's and Wendy's like, like shut up, dude. Yeah, and she's like, shut up, you idiot. Uh, Tico tries to run more gun drills, and Wendy's like, we're not doing that here. Come on, dude. We're in the country. This is stupid. My guy, Joe, is still in jail, and he's doing fine. He's do having an easy time in jail. So Mostly because we haven't killed anybody yet. Yeah, they sure. didn't kill anyone. There's, there's no reason for the police to shoot him, so they didn't. And it really starts to poke the holes in the cult thing again. Mm -hmm. She realized, like, oh, yeah, this kind of happened because <laughs> they were they started a war with the police when they showed up. Yeah. Uh, and like, yeah, Joe's doing fine in jail. So it's not like they're going to put them in jail and then assassinate them because who cares? They're not that important. <laughs> they're so not. Uh, and I, I love Wendy telling off uh, uh, Tico, just like all that crap about third world leadership is racist and based on white guilt. Oh yeah, she she even says white guilt, and he's like, yeah, he's basically just like doesn't want to hear it. It's like oh, we gotta get out of here. We gotta get back to San Francisco. Uh, and so, of course, they contact some friends of Jelena, and they go back to California to revive the Symbionese Liberation Army. Oh uh, man. I love when they're like, I don't know if it's here or if it's a bit later when they're having a meeting and he's just like, we need to go after a district attorney or dude, chill. Why? Yeah, that, that is a little bit later because this is, yeah, they, they go back to San Francisco, November 10th, 1974. So we're now nine months down. Nine months. Yeah. And they have these new people, new recruits. And they, they're just like, what does robbing banks have to do with the revolution? <laughs> yeah exactly like they're they're questioning uh like the whole premise of what they're doing versus what they're saying yeah and they they do the first one and it goes okay and then yolanda wants to do one with herself in charge to really show things and it's it's like they've become addicted to the thrills at this point you know they're they're tourists mm. doing this they're not doing it for like now that it's the tico and yolanda cult it's just thrill-seeking. Oh, yeah. Um, neither of them can lead a cult. No, and someone gets shot at the the next robbery, the, the Yolanda-led robbery. Right, uh, like an old lady, I think. Or I, I, I looked it up. I think she was like a mother of five or something. Brutal. Oh, yeah. uh, so they, they decide they have to switch to bombings because, uh, you know, the, the bank thing didn't go so well. And now, now we, it's politically sensitive or whatever. Yeah. And so they're trying to blow up cop cars. This one's kind of fun. They're just like putting bombs under vacant cop cars and blowing them up, which is kind of amusing. But now they're just bleeding members. Most of the people that joined briefly are just like, this is, what are we doing? How, how does any of this have to do with the revolution? Yeah, exactly. Um, this is when Tico like... is uh, after it. It's like, oh, we got to assassinate the attorney general. 
Yeah, and Yolanda's like, dude, shut up. We're not at that point. Why? We gotta be doing more and bigger. And it's like, no, God, come on. Yeah, and Yolanda, this is where she says, like, well, we need to get some black leadership. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, Which, again, very fetishization thing going on. Yeah, uh, I, I wonder how that's going to work. It's like, it's just going to go up to black people on the street and be like, hey, do you want to lead our revolution cult and like be in charge of it and be responsible for all of our lives? It makes zero sense. It is the most baffling thing any of them say. Uh, like, they, they need a new cult leader and they're going to go out and find one. Because, <laughs> like, one of the new guys in the cult, he's like, I don't know. Why Why should I be impressed by the SLA's accomplishments? You killed some bureaucrat and then kidnapped a teenager and robbed a bank? Who cares? And he's pretty, much. pretty right. Yeah. And Tico is just like, he's beat red. He's livid. He's like, we're going to go out and find a black leader. And he storms out with Yolanda. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are they going to do? Go to like, oh, my God. I can just imagine them going to like a basketball game. Where are we going to find black people? Yeah, I, I feel like that's exactly the sort of thing they're doing. They're going to just like wander around the ghetto and look for someone on the corner preaching like a crazy person. <laughs> I'm just imagining them like trying to go into like Marlo Stanfield's territory and running into like Idris Elba. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's so absurd. So Patty's like, I'm just going to stay here with Wendy. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, and a little while later, the two of them get arrested by the FBI. Uh, she she pees herself when they come in, but they do not shoot her. Uh, and yeah, that's right. She's like, can I have a change of pants? <laughs> oh, uh, and when they get to the station, Yolanda's already there being taken into. <laughs> yeah, she's like, how did they find us? It's like, come on, you guys are not very good at anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they ask her Patty her occupation, and she ta- he does like a really long like triple beat and looks around and smiles at everyone and says, "Urban gorilla." <laughs> She's having a little fun. She's like, yeah. it's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long. Well, yeah, it's been about nine or ten months at this point. And she's, and she's, she's just been around crazy people. people. Yeah. So we cut to le- the legal team struggling with the case. Because it's like, well, why are we even doing this case? This is absurd. She was kidnapped. She, this is this whole St- Stockholm Syndrome thing. Yeah, but we need to have a jury prove that what she did was or wasn't okay. Yeah. Like, but, yeah, that's just this whole going back and forth thing. Like, uh, the public wants equal justice for the rich is a really important factor. And it's like... Uh, this bank robbery that she was involved in, it was two months into her captivity. You know, she was obviously coerced into it. And most importantly, like she's our only witness in the case against Yolanda and Tico for the death in the other robbery. So like if we convict her, that's counterproductive. Mm -hmm. It's going to taint the testimony for that case. This this seems like just a a complete lose-lose situation for us. Well, we're doing it anyway. Right. And like another guy's like, oh, come on, if this were a military court martial, she'd be off in a day. This is obvious brainwashing and coercion. Yeah. And it's like, well, this isn't a, a, a court martial. And it, it's like this is going to cost four to five million dollars for the American government. And it's just 
going to be a bogus show trial? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love bogus show trials. Heck, I, I'm going to be doing one with OJ in a few decades. Well, yeah, it's F. Lee bogus, Bailey. But, you know. yeah, yeah, F. Lee Bailey. I, elements of it were bogus. Yes. Uh, and he's like, well, America wants to know. They need 12 jurors to tell them how to feel. It's, it's just a trial so they can feel better about themselves and choose yeah. the right way to feel. It's yep. just culture war. It's generational warfare. Mm-hmm. And it's them. It's it's the 60s counterculture going on trial because the, the 60s counterculture is like this bogeyman who metaphorically kidnapped all their kids. Oh, totally. Yeah. This whole peace, love and harmony movement. <laughs> well, isn't this exactly the Antifa argument these days, right? Well, it is. It totally is. Yeah. Like th- these guys are what people think Antifa is. Yeah, they're like the cartoon version of what what people sort of imagine Antifa is as like a, an actual organization that exists instead of being just a general like, you know, people who don't like fascism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very strange. So there's this part where Patty is reunited with her family, but she immediately flashes back to her closet land visions of being with them. Cause like early on when she was in the really abstract, we'd have all these weird quick shots of her as a child, but like blindfolded and uh, like yeah. with her family, but like she's just wearing you no know, frilly dresses and doing kid things, but in a blindfold. Mm-hmm. So she flashes back to those and just instantly goes catatonic on reuniting with them. Yeah. So, Obviously, Bailey, her lawyer, it's like, well, we should get her to speak to some psychiatrists and they can testify for you. So you don't have uh, to. Yeah. Um, this whole thing. What, <laughs> oh, God. What was it that they said? So there's I, yeah, I got there is. Uh, so tell me about any lesbian activity in the cult. Uh, were you blindfolded? You were uh, blindfolded for how long? You were blindfolded for how long? Did SinQ try to seduce you? Uh, Tell me about lesbian activity. Yeah, it's like there. there's one thing about the blindfolding and all of them is like, so the sex, though. I mean, tell me about the sex. The sex, I think, is is important. Just all of these psychiatrists, they all have their own little kernel of interest and don't care about anything else. Yeah, yeah, totally. And they're just like repeating the same questions over and over again. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's like the support group in uh, Videophobia. That's right. <laughs> oh, my God, it's just like that. <sighs> and like at night, Yolanda is in one of the nearby cells and she's talking shit about how, you know, we should have killed you. I kill you right now. Kill you right this minute. You're, you're <laughs> snitching on us. Yeah. So you're I try trying to make it look like we kidnapped you and then brainwashed <laughs> you and then made you do all these things against your will. And you're trying to make it look like we shot people and robbed banks. Yeah, I, I don't really get where she uh, feels she has any sort of uh, leg to stand on with any of this stuff, but she's uh, going off. Mm-hmm. So obviously the psychiatrists are a washout. She has to go to the stand herself at the yeah. trial. And they ask her about her various opportunities for escape and very rightly she's like well where would i have gone <laughs> yeah like what opportunity for escape really now 
yeah, please. What, what, what am I supposed to do? Uh, and the, like they have the tapes. So she's like, well, you know, on the tapes, you literally said you weren't brainwashed. Like, come on. <laughs> I was sitting in a closet being told to say I was not brainwashed. Why? <laughs> come on. So you're saying you lied when you made these tapes? Can we trust the testimony of a liar? Yeah, the prosecutor runs over to the jury, like, jury, jury, don't you see? You have to ignore her testimony because she's admitted she's a liar. She didn't send her parents birthday cards. That's how right. you know she doesn't love them. That's insane. She was kidnapped by a cult. <laughs> yeah, and forced to participate in their... <laughs> she didn't send birthday cards? Are you insane? <laughs> What would the birthday cards even say? Like, hi, mom, I'm not being brainwashed or beaten. Don't worry. Love you. Happy birthday. Yeah, like, just truly baffling. And astonishing, they they find her guilty. And F. Lee Bailey's like, well, I want to pull the jury to see uh, who voted against her. And it is unanimous. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, nope, guilty, 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 guilty. And it's like, wow, you did a shitty job, Bailey. This was a slam dunk case. Everyone in the actual league is like, well, we don't have a leg to stand on, obviously. Yeah, later she's like, I think I'm going to fire F. Lee Bailey. Yeah, I'm firing Bailey. I'm going to hire this guy, George Martinez. He's going to seek a presidential pardon for me. Because uh, this is when her dad goes to visit her in jail uh, to say that the her appeal to the Supreme Court was denied. Yeah. But she's like, Look, the media is a tool, and we'll use it. You're and starting he, to sound like Citizen Kane. Yeah, you sound like your grandfather. Uh, it was like, well, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> got to do what you got to do. You're she's not exactly in the best situation. Got to kind of got to use what you have. So there's a couple lines here that she says that are really great, and it also makes me realize that the movie I Tanya is a carbon copy of the structure of this movie. You know, I was thinking of I, Tanya. Um, Especially the ending. It's like beat for beat, the exact same conclusion. <laughs> Where like you just have her talk to the camera and say, okay, this is the lesson to learn from all of this. And it's the same yeah. lesson. So she's like, look, people fantasized, me, fantasized about me so long that they thought they knew me. And her surviving... Her, the reality of her continuing on is too inconvenient. It's like, I'm here and I'm going to let them know it. Yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's even what she says. Is like, my biggest mistake was that I survived. Shouldn't yeah. have done that. Yeah. And she's like, look, my crime was surviving, so fuck them. Fuck them all. And that's the final line of the movie. Yeah, like, I, yeah, yeah, I, Tanya took a lot from this, actually. It, it really feels like it. I, like, this film doesn't have a very big footprint, but it really echoes with it. Uh, yeah. And, and so, uh, concluding Scrawl, uh, they say that, you know, Patty did get her sentence commuted by the president in 1979. Uh, so, that would have been Carter. History's greatest monster. <laughs> Such a nice man. Tico and Yolanda both got eight years in prison. I feel like that's not enough. I mean, they're, they're in a cult. They, they didn't really, like, there's one person who was killed in that one bank robbery, but they didn't do a lot of other stuff. Like, there were no other deaths other than their own people. Yeah, but 
and he's well, kind of been know, in and out of jail from from then on. Like, I think he's in jail now. Oh, I, wow. I read something about. I think he was convicted for the the actual murder, like because it was ruined. I think by her being convicted, so they just kind of didn't do that other trial properly. Oh, okay. Uh, the something came out. Like, I, I was reading something about it that they were convicted of it in like the aughts and went to jail. Oh shit! Really? Wow. Yeah. So it like, uh, hadn't even happened yet when this movie came out. Well, no, he was out because it says in the final crawl that as Bill Harris, he works at a legal firm during like in like 80, 88 when this came out. I just so imagining what? Tico in a legal <laughs> firm. Well, it's we, like, your honor, I move that the jury are a bunch of fascist pigs and need to be blown up. Well, it just um, makes overruled. perfect. It makes perfect sense as well, because he is uh, this. Like he's a rich boy, and like, well, like his family probably has connections and can get him into a legal firm, right? You know who he kind of reminds me of? Mm. Uh, the version of Kylo Ren that Adam Driver plays in that SNL sketch. Yeah, uh, the yeah. undercover boss, where he's like, "Yeah, I heard Kylo Ren has like an eight pack and he's shredded. Want to see his lightsaber?" Yeah, that that feels like a Tico kind of approach to uh, an undercover boss. <laughs> yeah. He reminded me of, like, that kind of person. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the last couple postscripts. Wendy just short, served a very short term and got out. She she works at a restaurant now in Oregon. I was like, okay, good. I'm glad that she just, like, got out of the life. And it's like, mm-hmm. screw this. Yeah. Uh, and my the, the very funny capper is that the owner of Mel's Sporting Goods claims that the shooting gave him erectile dysfunction. <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm sorry. I know that like having guns going off outside PTSD, of your store is traumatizing, but, but that's funny. That's that's a little absurd and a, that's obviously a stretch, but yeah, that really cracked me up when I got to it. Just a perfect capper for how weirdly silly this true crime movie was. Yeah, like it, it, it the tonal shift as soon as she takes off her blindfold is like night and day. It's like super serious, like dark despair no hope just torture nasty shit and then hey let's let's play with these idiots well we know right from the beginning that we're in a cult situation but all of that area is where it's the cult terrorizing her and then as soon as the blindfold is off and we see the reality of the cult it becomes absurd instantly Mm -hmm. and it's such like it's it's very well done like i i have to praise schrader for it like i don't know how true to the reality of the SLA any of it is, and maybe it's just a total hack job to the hatchet job. But it could be. <laughs> I mean, it was very funny, and it probably does make a lot of sense from Patty Hearst's perspective. So, like, mm-hmm. as a perspective movie, this is great. As just, you know, uh, it, it was her showing that she was basically brought into a cult. Mm hmm. Even if it yeah. was portrayed in uh, the media as a, a terrorist cell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, great movie. Uh, I, I, I wasn't expecting it to get so goofy, I guess. Yeah, uh, it's it's surprisingly funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was, that was yeah. the biggest thing that I, I really wasn't expecting about it is how comical a lot of it is. Like just William Forsyth as Tico is so funny. Like, he just rides a perfect line because he's just annoying enough to be 
hugely comical and just a oh i wish i was black scene oh my god so funny and the two of them we're gonna go out and get some black leadership right now <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, a concrete basketball court just outside i'll find some black kids oh like so just this weird racism turned in on itself where he's just like extremely racist but he's deeply trying to pretend that he is anti-racist it's such a weird thing <laughs> yeah <sighs> uh yeah a lot of fun very very interesting uh you you do come out of it with a lot of sympathy for patty hurst yeah yeah uh so any last thoughts on that one before we move to part two i guess i should mention that uh this is replaced in the stacks with the last man on earth oh uh vincent price movie Okay, not the Tim Allen uh, thing. <laughs> no. Uh, so this is based on uh, I Am Legend. So uh, oh, okay. This was the earliest version of it, made in the 60s, and then it was remade with Charlton Heston uh, as the Omega Man and then with Will Smith, obviously, as I Am Legend. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Vincent Price is the last man on Earth. And uh, during the day, he hunts the vampires that still live in there, and then he hides out at night from their attacks cool pretty cool movie sounds uh, like it yeah so uh any last thoughts before we move on to part two no i'm i'm ready all right and we're back for part two where we're talking about stanley kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey uh one of the more famous movies we've covered i guess up there with jaws you know i thought it was just like a little known uh thing that's <laughs> really paid attention to it oh my god so this is my first time seeing it and uh, it's amazing how much every single thing that takes place in outer space uh, took something from this movie. Everything. Everything. I- including many people believe the moon landing, because th- this is the reason people think that the moon landing was faked by Stanley Kubrick, because the effects in this movie are still to this day perfect. Like they're they're so impressive. Oh yeah, like this. This might be the best, the most beautifully shot movie I've ever seen. It's like it, it's very slowly paced, but like you see the perfectionism of Kubrick coming into play here, where just the compositing and the way each of the effects is designed is so perfectly designed and so seamless that, you know, it's 60 years later and it still looks incredible. Mm-hmm. The whole time watching this, I was just like, like they didn't have computer stuff. How did they do this? Like, yeah, oh, I've been meaning to ask, did they actually build that one spaceship? Did they make the set a wheel and have a? Yeah, because that oh, yeah. they really because yeah, I was, was just thinking, how, cool did they sh- how did they shoot the jogging scene? So it really is a hamster wheel. I think they just built a huge set with that. Uh, oh, my God. Very That's amazing. Sets. Uh, and and I think it's like a set that revolved or something. Yeah, yeah. That the the Discovery One is an incredible setting, uh, and it just like it, it's one of these weird cozy spaces, despite being extremely calamitous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like by comparison, I I've watched the sequel 2010 uh, in between. Oh, uh, how was that? It's it's decent. Uh, it, it's it's a pretty good movie that just is nowhere near this one because it's just like how could you even 
I, yeah, I mean, this movie, what would a sequel even be about? It's nine years later and you you go back. Uh, I don't want to go back. <laughs> the story's it's, over. Well, it's interesting because there, there is more to say because uh, certainly the, the ending of this is pretty unclear there's there's a lot of questions left <laughs> yeah yeah i guess it's not one that's wrapped up in a neat little package yeah and so like the, the sequel is written by arthur c clark as well like he wrote this one they're both based on his novels i think this one like he wrote the novel in collaboration with writing the screenplay with kubrick oh, okay but uh the the second one, yeah, he he did write a sequel novel, uh, and it's an adaptation of that in like '84. But like where this one is classical and timeless, like you you look at it and it just kind of always feels like a weird future, uh, even though you you know that it's set 20 years ago now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish we got this future instead of the one we ended up with. Ah, uh, there. Wanted to. Sorry, go ahead. Their vision of commercial space travel at the early aughts, based on like the the vision of sixties Pan Am, is so beautiful. It's it's so alluring. I know it's like they've got the they've got the air the layover in like, I guess it would be like the equivalent of having a lay stopover in Atlanta, but it's like the, imagining airports not being hell. It's a, it's a layover like on the moon and, and the, there's like. Or the on, like, Moon this, Hilton or something. <laughs> yeah, like this orbiting space station. It's like, all right, you stop here, and then you go to the moon, or you go to Mars, or you go back down to Earth. And it's just this chill white paneling. It's curved. You have these weird red couches. Oh, it looks so cozy. I want it. Uh, and and that's like it, it's again the thing with the the discovery where it's calamitous. Like you're in a very dangerous space. Everybody dies. But uh-huh. uh, I kind of just want to live there, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's it's. But like the, even though the whole thing is just like actually a really small circle, but at the same time, it's just so cool. That just all looks so cozy. Like it'd be a really great place to catch up on your reading. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so this one starts actually the same way Spartacus does with like the or at least this version of it does with like the mm. black screen and just the score playing. Uh, but this score is just <sighs> like just voices that are way higher than yeah. I'm willing to go. And oh, it's it's oh. the voice of the monolith, right? Well, uh, which we do hear later. Like this is sort of the way the oh, monolith yeah. sounds. Uh, but like I, I think this is so I, I believe for this release, we're watching the most recent restoration of it, uh, which is is quite recent. Uh, and was reissued to theaters briefly. Like, oh, okay. Just before the pandemic. This restores the overture and entract, which I, or intermission, which I don't believe were in uh, previous versions I've watched. But yeah, it, it it makes the movie even more ballsy to me that it just opens with this three minutes of discordant noise and screaming. <laughs> yeah, it's like and black, no no mo- no movement or visuals at no all. No screen. Yeah, just uh, it it's like how you might imagine hell sounds like. Yeah, well, like uh, did you ever play Duke Nukem? Duke Nukem uh, 3D back in the day? Oh, yeah, I think so. I played one of the Duke Nukems. The, the first-person shooter one that was kind of a Doom clone, but he, he did lots of quips. 
And it had lots oh, of movie yeah, references. Oh, yeah, where he's yeah, where he's basically just uh, Ash from Army of Darkness. And he's sort of an amalgam of every action hero, I guess. Or rather, uh, and, he steals a lot of lines from Ash. Uh, and and one of the ways you travel through, uh, you teleport, is by these monoliths, and they make the wailing noises in the oh, game. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah. And and like yeah, you you actually do teleport to hell with them and stuff. So yeah, so oh neat thing. Um, yeah, so I didn't realize. I thought it was just like, oh, hey, spooky opera, which is kind of how I've like called it. It's like, oh, spooky, scary death opera, <laughs> or or spooky choir. Mm-hmm. Spooky in a way that's kind of scary sounding, not like spooky. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like it, it feels like an alien intelligence is is sort of what we're supposed to gather from it. That is this. Uh, it, it transmits some sort of alien knowledge. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe we're just interpreting it as spooky sounds because that's all that's all our brain can understand. Uh, it's right. never, ever clear what what exactly these monoliths are, just that they're alien something or other. So what knowledge do you think the obelisk transmits? I, I mean, we're we're I guess we're kind of getting ahead of the the part. We, so should we get into the the dawn of man? Oh yes. So after we've got our opening bit, uh, we've got our other opening bit where it's like da 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 boom 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 boom. And uh, I got legendary admit, opening title. Legendary, but. The first time I watched it, my brain automatically shut itself off because this song is used in every TV and stereo and audio commercial ever. So I just immediately thought, oh, well, commercial time. I can just look at my phone. Wait a second. Well, that's a real danger of this movie using all classical compositions. Uh, These are all famous classical compositions and this movie made them way, way, way more famous. Mm-hmm. So all of these advertisers would be like, well, that's a good public domain song that everybody knows and sounds impressive. Yes. That's, that's money in the bank. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Thus spake, Zarath- uh, spake Zarathustra. I didn't know that was the name for that song. I, I've heard the name and I've obviously heard the song. I didn't put them together, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, I've got a collection. I've got the soundtrack to this sitting right next to my desk here. <laughs> it's, the soundtrack's only like five songs. Uh, well, there, there's a bunch of little classical pieces throughout. Uh, seven pieces uh, listed oh, okay. here. Although uh, maybe one of these is from Spartacus. No, no, it's the the second half of the disc is Spartacus. This is this box set. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, also Sprach Zarathustra, or Thus Spake Zarathustra, uh, by Richard Strauss. Uh, it's amazing. It's kind of funny, though, that it's always used in, like, stereo commercials, because when you got, like, a good audio system or good headphones, it really is a good-sounding song. Like, it's, oh, yeah. it's, like have, it's like it's having sex with my ears. Well, it's it's such an incredible orchestral version. Like th- this is sort of one of the best known versions of it by uh, the Vienna Philharmonic, uh, which I, I feel like it's the iconic version of it, and it's beautifully recorded. Oh yeah, yeah. Like 
it doesn't feel like it was recorded in the 60s. Well, the 60s notably were the original big hi-fi era. So you had uh, people doing these really high-end recordings, multi-directional, and you'd have like quadraphonic sound. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, where just, it kind of grew more lo-fi in the 70s and 80s again. Oh, okay. That's why I more electronic. That, yeah. I love the sound of like this philharmonic, especially when I'm high and like just oh, like yeah. the background instruments. Like it's never actually silent. It's always just like when there's no specific music playing at any point in time. And it's just I love the sound of that. It's the the ambient orchestral hum. Yeah. Mm hmm. And we've got and while this is going on, of course, we've only talked about the song. Uh, we've got like this cool looking sunrise over Earth as shot from the moon. Yeah. And we, we see them align, yeah. which is notable because they will much more align at the end. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, a lot of planets aligning. It's actually uh, pretty important, I think, to how these monoliths work. Yeah. Not that we know. <laughs> hard to say i it's yeah. it's much more heavily explained in 2010 uh i i almost don't want an explanation i think it needs to stay mysterious well so uh, yeah i totally agree it, it it plays much better to just kind of be blank about it and, and have it be this hermetically sealed space uh i i do feel that's sort of the biggest failing of 2010 is it spends a lot of time on earth and dealing with earth shit and earth politics it's like, oh, I don't, I don't care. Get on the spaceship that looks beautiful and go to fucking Jupiter, please. When are we going to get to the acid trip factory? <laughs> well, the, the the exciting thing there is like, when are we going to get back to the ghost ship of the Discovery? Oh, Ooh, right. because, yeah, there wouldn't be anybody on that ship. It's just sitting there spinning in space. Yeah. I uh, wonder what kind of records might have survived. I don't know. Hmm. Okay, yeah. that, is a, that is an interesting thing. It's a very good premise, and I, and I think the movie's like 75% good. Okay, well, it's yeah. better than a lot of movies. Yeah. Better than a I, lot of sequels. Yeah, it, it was a big-budget sequel. Like, they were aiming for something, and they do... A similar like rug pull insane thing happening at the end as well, where it's like, okay, I, I you explained everything earlier, and now I don't know what's going on anymore. So that's <laughs> fine. Uh, so we start at the beginning of humanity, the dawn of actually. man. Yep, when mankind was just a bunch of damn dirty apes who uh, hang out with pigs who steal their grass, and they can't do anything about it. But they love screaming. The effects are kind of astonishing, even at this point. Yeah. Because, like, they're people, like, they're, they're dancers uh, in, <laughs> in, like, monkey costumes. But, like, they, they feel pre-human. Like, it's, it's yeah. very effectively pulled off. And there's, I think it's uh, an extinct animal that they have there. And I have no idea how they simulated it either. <laughs> Well, I, I thought it was like a tapir or... Oh, maybe. Which I think it, those exist. But it, at the same time, like this whole scene has kind of like this otherworldly feel to it. Like the Earth yeah. was a completely different planet four million years ago. Feels I guess like that's, another planet. 
I guess that's another thing that uh, I really love about this movie uh, is that it kind of only exists in pre-human and post-human spaces. Yeah, we see. I always thought like I knew that this movie started out with uh, monkeys. I thought we were going to go down the whole history until we right. got to uh, until we got to space. And no, that's <laughs> no, it goes literally from it's like a smash cut to outer space from uh, the end of this section here well you, you know what or not the, a smash cut it's a, tra- a beautiful transition which we'll get to one of the most famous transitions of all time one of them but yeah like we just got these ape people uh hanging out <laughs> they don't really like the pigs but it feels like they can't do anything about them so they're just screaming at them screaming at each other suddenly leopard Oh yeah, that the the leopard is incredible, and like they clearly just got an actual leopard, and again the effects that they just had a leopard tackle a couple dancers, I guess. Yeah, yeah, just like from this huge ass high cliff, it comes out of nowhere. I love and... the first shot of it with its eyes glowing. In the oh dark. yeah, the leopard's eyes are always glowing whenever it's on screen for like the yeah. two shots it exists. Uh, like... Very eerie, and like it it sort of digs into primal human fear like this is sort of just digging into the the basic fears that like you know going down the evolutionary line Mm -hmm. because after this we see them later on like huddled up and sleeping under these cliffs also like hiding like shit Mm -hmm. is scary out there there's leopards and they could eat your face whether you vote for them or not Mm -hmm. the humans aren't on top of the food chain yet they're just part of it well yeah they they don't seem to eat meat or anything either. They seem to just be scavengers. Uh-huh. Uh, so they're just the first hominins who have come out of the trees, basically. Yeah, and they're they're just trying to. They're living on basically. It kind of looks like I, I'm sure it's like the African desert or something, but it kind of feels the veld. like. Oh, the way they shoot it. I don't know. They make it feel like so like a different planet. I really like it. Like it feels like it could be Mars or something. Yeah. It was like all along. Pre-human. Uh, yeah. And, and they've got this rival tribe, but again, they, they, they can only scream at them. There's, there's really nothing else that they've got. Yeah. They've got no, uh, they don't have claws. They don't have like super running. Well, actually humans do have super running powers, but that's kind of fallen by the wayside these days. But yeah, they, they don't have a whole lot. And then suddenly they wake up to the monolith. It's just <clears throat> there and it's actually a lot smaller than I expected it to be. Right. And they get they grow larger as uh, we go further away from Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when we discover the one uh, on, is it the moon or is it Mars? Uh, I think it's the moon. It's the moon. It's the moon. Yeah. That one's bigger. That one's and bigger. Then the and next then the one, one is real big. big. Yeah. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of really big ones in uh, 2010 as well. Okay. The thing about this, it's just like sticking up out of the ground and it is completely black. I don't know how to describe how black it is. Like it resists light. It's a, it's like a Vanta black, like a, which is like a, a paint that I, I think literally does that. It's it's the the blackest black that exists. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. Like this is the paint you would use if you wanted to uh, paint a hole in a tunnel to catch the Road Runner. Right. 
Uh, and, you know, they, they all touch it and, you know, worship at it. Well, first they scream at it for a few minutes. Well, of course. Yeah, you know, know, that's all they do is like, what, what is they this? They love screaming. Uh, it, things have not changed. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah, they're touching it and they're like, they're gathering around it. They're like, what is this thing? Oh, man. Well, they're not saying anything. They're screaming. They're like right. huddling over it. Uh, after a while, the music drowns out. They're screaming. So it's just the music. And, and of course, the music is like, yeah. So what knowledge do you think the obelisk transmits to them? Um, That's hard to say. So uh, uh, there, there's a few potentials. So it could be technology or could it be like tool use in general or is it specifically tool use for violence? Like I, I wonder the the is the violence the intent or is it what humans bring to the equation um i think it could be <laughs> it could be like the the interstellar thing where it's projecting uh human technology from the future into the past what it's one thing it could be it could also just be like Ooh, hey, have you tried looking around at stuff and try using things on things Ooh. Well, I, I mean, it clearly has to be a, a fairly simple concept because it's them learning to use tools, basically. But they immediately use tools in a violent fashion. Uh, yeah. And I guess the the question is, it, like, it's clearly drawing a line between the monolith and violence. But I'm not sure if the idea is that the monolith creates violence in humanity or if humanity brings violence to the concept of technology, because... We have established that all they do is just scream at everything. Yeah, they they aren't they aren't friendly. No. And uh, yeah, now it's like, uh, hey, man, now I can finally club the shit out of someone who screams at me wrong. Yeah, and and they also, I, I guess, notably, they they also start to eat meat because this is when they club one of the tapirs and they start eating those, uh, mm. and and that's kind of like revolutionary as well. Yeah, starting a millennia-long tradition of uh, hunting innocent herbivores to extinction. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and like this is definitely—I I feel like this is supposed to represent something, maybe that does not does not quite exist anymore. And this is sort of like a different version of it that they've kind of dressed up. Hmm. I'm not sure, but I, I, I feel like I feel like I've read something about this. Well, there there is something to the. Uh, Oh, oh, here's <laughs> maybe it's transmitting just uh, like the whole knowledge of just how the food chain works and how survival of the fittest works. And OK, I, I so they're they're supposed to they they're tapirs, which are supposed to represent the Aohippus or Mesohippus, which is an oh, okay. extinct animal. OK, so I got a theory that. uh Mm -hmm. Without getting too much into it, much, much later um, in the third part, the Jupiter part, I got a theory that uh, someone uh, picked up transmissions from the monolith long before the human people ever saw the big gigantic one. And uh, that might have affected someone's behavior. And and I think it's like basically what I'm thinking is uh, like how 9000 was acting funny when they got in closer proximity to Jupiter, I'm, which I'm thinking that 
he started acting more in self-preservation, but not in harmony, like more of a fuck, fuck you guys, I'm going to get mine sort of thing. Well, uh, so the most of 2010 is uh, Hal did no wrong kind of thing where they, they rehabilitate him and like decide that it was because of conflicting orders he was given that he kind of had to uh, creatively interpret the the right way to uh, resolve the issue. Okay. Because hmm. he's a computer and he does not yeah. like he he has vague artificial intelligence, but if he has two conflicting orders, uh, they're just going to make him go a little bit crazy. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I was thinking like he became a little bit more self aware after picking up transmissions right. from the monolith. Yeah, I, I guess that that could be the other thing is that. He, the that could be the other concept is that the the monolith just transmits thought like rational thought uh and in the same sense that later on when we have when we have uh, uh hal interacting with it it makes him more self-aware than he previously was and i think maybe that's supposed to be the initial concept uh for hal anyways uh that maybe is retconned in the sequel mm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I do like not knowing what it's transmitting, though. Yeah, uh, but like I, I feel there's definitely some inherent violence in it uh, because I and, and maybe it's because of the inherent uh, self-preservation involved with being self-aware. Could be. Yeah, uh, that um, like you kind of immediately become more fearful of the things around you uh, because of your mortality and awareness of your mortality. Uh, so I, I, I guess the main thing is when he throws the bone up in the air and, and it, yeah. it moves to the future or like, or do, or do we have anything in between that? Not really. So, you know, no, they, they fight the monkeys and, you know, they kill yeah, the, one the guy, rival tribe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, starting a millennia long tradition of killing anyone who screams at us the way we don't like it. Yeah, so he throws the bone up in the air, and we have that very elegant transition that it's starting to fall back down, and it transforms into the shot of uh, the satellite. Mm -hmm. So do you know what the satellite is? Uh, I don't know what this satellite is, no, because uh, I don't think we go on board this one. It is an ICBM platform. Oh. Oh. So... We move from the first weapon to the last weapon, like the, the weapon that can end the entire Earth. Uh, from, uh, wow. OK. Yeah. So <laughs> that, that this is why I'm thinking that it, it's specifically a technology of violence and war that the that that the monolith represents or transmits. Hmm. I, I see. I like to think of it. I don't know if this is what was intended or not, but I kind of like to think of it as like a neutral entity that just sort of accelerates our own uh, thinking. Well, yeah, I, I, that's sort of what I'm saying with the people being wh where I was saying with, uh, did people bring the violence to it or did uh, uh, the violent was the violence inherent in the monolith? I, it does seem like it's being suggested that it's people who bring the violence to the monolith or to the message mm -hmm. that people bring violence to technology because of our, uh, our history of aggression, like we uh, a aggressive group was given this power to begin with and 
fueled their aggression. Uh, and those were the people who survived because they were the aggressive ones who knew how to use tools and kill. Man, I wish the monolith had uh, showed up outside the pig's cave and that the pigs were making their own uh, their own stuff. And then they got and then well, they got like pig uh, satellites. Well, I, I figured that, you know, something like that is basically how we get Howard the Duck. And, and that's the Howard <laughs> the Duck universe, right? Really? OK. Presumably, the, you know, that, that's that, that seems like basically how we have one of these alt universes where it's animals is just that's what evolution chose. The the ancient aliens gave it to someone else. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, of course. So I didn't know that was an ICBM. I thought that was just like, you know, an observational satellite, like the ones we have now, not like the ones we probably want to put up to do Star Wars shit. I mean, we've been t- the there have been presidents talking about creating these the Star Wars ones uh, for my entire lifetime. So, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, it was certainly an idea back then. Mm-hmm. Which you know, it's in 1968, and they they were putting it in this movie. But yeah, that that is is one of those very popular uh, factoids about this movie that this is a an ICBM platform. Yeah, okay. Well, that kind of changes the context of the scene a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Of course, we have another iconic track, uh, the the music that every every single thing uses every time somebody is floating in space without gravity. Every single time you have to use this song. The Blue Danube Waltz by Johann Strauss II. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which has become the space floating music. Well, it's so elegant and it's so classy. I, I believe after this, Kubrick tried to get an actual classical composer to compose a score for his movie, but like everyone turned him down because it's like, you can't just compose a classical piece like that. You, we, we, if you want to commission a thing like that, it's going to take years. <laughs> I need you to write the next Blue Danube. Uh, yeah. You you know I'm you know I'm just a normal person, right? Yeah, I think it was maybe for it, like it may have been for this, but I, I believe it was maybe for Barry Lyndon that he tried to do that. Whereas, of course, Clockwork Orange, he has the synth versions of classical, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So we've got so we've got the ICBM satellite, which is um, just a scary thing to exist. But we've also got some cool shit. We've got a wheel-looking uh, satellite, and we've got the Pan Am shuttle. So cool. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the most attractive stuff. Uh, it, it, I, I would call it a cozy dystopia. Yeah, yeah. Because just uh, like, you know, them them crossing in front of an ICBM platform has some weird connotations, and I know in the sequel, the tensions between U.S. and Russia are really bad because it's a very '80s movie. Oh yeah, right. Uh, because in '80s, Russia is the bad guy of everything. Yeah, it's like it's like it's 2022. <laughs> oh my god, it's time is a flat circle, right? But yeah, we've got like the floating music. We uh, cut inside the shuttle where it, it looks like coach on an airplane, like not even first class. But it still looks so cozy because it's like the 60s vision of it. Yeah, when, <laughs> and, when you know, air travel wasn't hell. 
it, it was elegant. It was luxurious. It was the Pan Am era where like it was cool and classy and you had all of these sexy movies about stewardesses. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and here the stewardesses look like space balls. Oh, yeah, of course. Or rather, space balls look like the stewardesses from here. Really, and we're probably clearly modeled after this because oh, yeah. yeah, so influential. Uh, th- this also is where we see the zero G toilet, which is the funniest thing in the movie by far. Oh my god, the zero G toilet with like an essay on how to use it. And <laughs> nine paragraphs of text, just the guy leaning He's in looking biting at it, like... his fist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. Uh we've got the uh no floating velcro shoes. I, I just th- there is that toilet joke in this movie is is another point. To just I don't get why people think Kubrick is humorless. <laughs> no, that is funny. He's got That's... like very funny jokes in all of these movies. <laughs> oh, man, that, that might like, yeah, it might be the best toilet joke ever, uh, along with the three seashells. Oh, top tier for sure. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I've never seen this one done before, actually. Yeah, and it's just so elegant because, like, it's again we're we're kind of gliding through all of the interior of this ship and just seeing how cozy and interesting and like padded and comfy uh, two thousand one space travel is. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've got like the stewardess grabbing a tray of food and then walking up the wall to get to. Uh, oh. Yeah. Tremendous effect. That one must have been shot using like like a wheel type rig on an axle or something. Some kind of gimbal. Like I I have watched documentaries on somehow of it, some of how this was done, but like uh, I I think he was pretty secretive about it, which again it sort of fueled the <laughs> the yeah. uh, uh, the the moon landing stuff. Well, yeah, we do get uh, a moon landing scene, and it's not that different from how it really went. Yeah, and it looks incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so then we get the the shuttle (laughs) uh, matching the spinning of the giant uh, wheel station, and and, like the shot from inside the station where the space is moving around, but the shuttle isn't moving. It just reminded me of like that Homer Simpson in space with the potato chip shot. Yeah. Like Like it's exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. Which it was based on. Yeah. And like, even in my notes, rather than try to write down anything, I just doodled a little spinning Homer. Mm. Also, what I think is really cool is like when we're in the exterior space shots, there is no sound effects. It's just music. Mm hmm. Um, light classical yeah uh, I, I i believe maybe still the blue danube or maybe now this is the i i think we keep we stay on the blue danube yeah um until until we're off of the until we're off of the space travel part and onto the moon right so then he gets to uh space immigration which <laughs> i imagine like in actual 2020 there'd just be like huge lineups and it would be so chaotic and not fun but here it's like oh i'm here to see oh yeah I'm, the director of security actually wants to meet me personally because i'm important oh well here he is well it also seems like it's pretty luxury level it's it's not it, it's early commercial space travel so there's really only dignitaries and rich people oh yeah yeah that, that makes sense 
not not for the bourgeois or the the um, the poor's. Well, like, where are you going to go? There's nowhere to tour. Like, you you could see space, but you probably wouldn't go to like the uh, space station for that. You just do like a tour uh, in a ship, oh, yeah, like I a guess, whale tour, right? Yeah. And I guess civilians aren't really going to and from the moon base right now, and probably not at all. Yeah, well, they they say that it's quarantined. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we've got, like, the cool uh, cafe-restaurant-type thing. So awesome. Where it's, the best. it's all curved, right, because it's a wheel. But, like, yeah. the differing curves in every one of these ships and, like, how they're not – oh, what am I trying to say? The sharpness of the curvature is always different. Like, here it's a – it's a gentler curve. Well, yeah, it's it's a much larger station. Yeah. So, like, you you have the the kiosks for different uh, hotels on there. Like, yeah. there, there's and and you got like uh, the little dining areas and lounges. Mm-hmm. I love I, those little red couches. <laughs> those couches, man. I don't know how comfortable they'd be, but they I do want not one look anyway. comfy. Yeah, they they look cool. But they're they're probably better as like cat furniture than human furniture. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So our guy, we we haven't Haywood Floyd. Yep. Uh, he's uh, the main character of 2010, but they recast him. Wait, he is. Yeah. 2010. He he's oh, the main 2010, character. 2010. 2010. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I was like, he's, he's not the main character here. I don't think. Guess who plays him in uh, the sequel? Uh, so they they uh, recast him. Get got a big leading man. Um, somebody I know. Somebody we've talked about. Uh, in Robert like Zero? So, someone who is a leading man in a previous one we've covered. Uh, shit. I'm not gonna guess it. Uh, uh, Roy Scheider. Oh shit. From Jaws. Interesting choice. Yeah. Uh, so he he's Haywood Floyd in 2010. I don't see it. Oh, I, yeah, oh no, Roy Scheider. Yeah, no, I do see it. I was thinking Richard Dreyfus. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, uh, Brody, Chief Brody. Yeah, no, I, I, I see it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, so uh, Haywood Floyd is the chairman of the United States National Council of Astronautics. He's, he's pretty important. I like the scene where he's in the phone booth uh, talking to his daughter, and you can just see, I, I don't know if it's the Earth or the moon, but you can just see it, like, spinning out the window right, as the ship rotates. That's that's so cool. That's such a great little effect. Uh, and, and the daughter played by Kubrick's daughter is very cute. <laughs> so adorable. Okay. Daddy, that's daddy. <laughs> uh, totally adorable. So that's Vivian Kubrick, who I think shoots the behind the scenes documentary on the, uh, on the set of the shining that has oh, all okay. just like the really, uh, wild revealing uh, stuff happening in like the the way scenes are prepared and that they're run over and over and over again. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah. So she grows up to make that documentary on like on set of uh, The Shining in uh, twelve years after this, I guess. Oh wow. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. So typical stuff like, oh, I'm sorry, Daddy can't be there for your birthday. I'm dealing with top secret shit yeah so like they there there's a media blackout and they're supposed to say that it's quarantined for some yeah. sort of space flu yeah yeah like we he, we talk we have him meeting with these uh colleagues uh like buddies he knows from the research circuit i guess 
And one guy's like super nosy. He's like, hey, why don't you tell us what's going on on Clavius, seeing as how that's already going? I heard that nobody's been able to phone them or get in touch with them. Oh, well, maybe the equipment's down. Yeah, and then when he gets there, it's like, uh, I, I myself was embarrassed by the the circumstances of our quarantine here, and I do understand that it's annoying. Yeah, well, the way he says it, because, yeah, he's, like, trying to downplay what's going on, and the guy's like, I heard there was a plague, and he's like, I'm not at liberty to say. Well, it's, it's really, uh, you know, if there's a plague on the moon, those of us on Earth kind of need to know about it, don't you think? Well, not at liberty to say. He's like, yeah, well, can we just uh, move on to something that I can talk about? A non-disclosure agreement, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know how it is. Oh, oh, is that my flight? I really must be going. Is that my space flight? <laughs> yeah, so we've got like another cool round shuttle. Uh, this is actually the one with the, the bathroom. Oh, okay, yeah. This kind of looks like a larger version of the actual moon lander. Right. It's got like the cockpit, I guess, up on the top and like they're just in seats arranged around in a circle where you can look out the window. But some people are just watching TV instead because space is like, yeah, been there, done that at this point. Yeah. Like, I guess for all of them, it's business travel, right? Yeah. These are all people who have to go to places in space for business reasons because there isn't really any recreational reason to go anywhere yet. Yeah, yet. What, one thing I love about all of this commercial space travel stuff, it has the vibe of like future concept art from the 30s to the 50s from like popular mechanics. It, oh. It's got this just gee golly space stuff, you know? If, <laughs> yeah, I would say, yeah, this is a real gee golly. Like, even though it's very, it, it you know, it's, it's reflecting commercialism, you see the Hilton and stuff, you know, it's, it's very canny. It's, it's cynical in those degrees, but the, the beauty of it, uh, feels very gee whiz. Like it's still, it, it's astonished by space, even if it is aware that it's going to be commercialized and packaged. Mm -hmm. So now we get the beautiful moon landing, which is shot like so many cool different ways. Like we see a shot from the landing pad while the, while the lander, uh, descends on it and it looks like the reverse shot of the escape pod from star wars uh, mm-hmm. when it flies out it's like the uh, the reverse of that so you know george lucas well, george lucas took a lot from this movie i i think george lucas is pretty open about a lot of his influences like he he has also said he stole a lot from kurosawa oh, uh, oh yeah. like uh c3po and r2d2 are like directly based on characters from the hidden fortress oh really mm-hmm. oh, interesting <laughs> I'm just imagining a samurai carrying around like a garbage can, like <laughs> stop messing with that all too. This is more the, like the dynamic between two very like goofy bandit characters. Oh yeah. I could see that. I could see yeah. that. And like, I think it's, I also noticed like when they're landing, the pilots are like facing upwards. So they got like this cool uh, retro looking computer thing to show how they land landing guidance system uh similar to the one we see in escape from new york when uh snake plissken's flying into new york oh interesting one thing i actually thought was really cool about this is like each of these ships they all have like like he's designed computer systems but he's designed different computer systems and different ui and animations for every ship 
because they're yeah. not all going to be the same if it's yeah if each it's like, space is unique uh mm -hmm. and, and they're all so interestingly cozy and full of detail like so much intricate detail mm -hmm. like this is one of the most beautifully uh designed movies i've ever seen yeah yeah totally uh, we've got like the the thing lands on the landing pad, and we've got like this long shot of it just descending down this huge elevator into this gargantuan underground space. The uh, a very cool mat shot, uh, mm -hmm. like uh, a very seamless mat shot, uh, one that you don't look at and think like, oh yeah, I mean that's a mat painting. You look like, holy shit, I they're like descending into this that. fucking crater. Yeah, yeah, it's totally. incredible. Yeah, oh man, it's awesome. And and I believe this is a shot that uh, is sort of alluded to in Aliens, uh, James Cameron's Aliens, the sequel. Oh, I haven't seen that one recently. I've seen Alien a couple of years ago, but I haven't seen Aliens in probably around probably at least 10 years. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I am planning on watching that one pretty soon because I just right watched on. Alien last week, right? Ah, Alien is so good. Rules, one of my favorites ever. Probably top ten. Um, great, space, great ship design, just like this, but very mm -hmm. different ship design. Although clearly influenced by this in a big way, but one that is more like it's further in the future and it's become a little bit more blue collar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So things are also dirtier and like a little grubbier. You know, there there's wear and tear on the the spaceship. You know? Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. It's it's. It's now work travel for people who like are space miners. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like this is the equivalent of getting on the friggin' city bus. Yeah. So now we have the briefing. I really like the set, the design of this room. It's really this. I okay, like is the wrong word. This is an oppressive room. Uh, it's strange love esque, right? Mm hmm. Like, where there's like, like the, no the lights on room. the ceiling. Yeah, the war room. No lights on the ceiling. The only light comes from like the led panels on the wall but it's it's a compelling claustrophobia because like it, it's almost cozy like if there weren't other people in there and it were just like a space you could retreat to it's just dim and you've got all of these different colored lights and panels in the wall and it would just be kind of this really nice escape space it's just the the context of it makes it oppressive mm-hmm mm-hmm it's in this briefing where we uh, where we see what he's doing on the moon. Well, actually, we don't because in this briefing, he never actually explains what's going on. He's just uh, trying to assuage everyone's fears about the cover story. Yeah, this is where he's like, look, I was embarrassed by it, too, and on the way here. Yeah, some of you are expressing concerns about this. Um, it is a little bit embarrassing, and I sympathize with your negative views. But too bad we have to keep this... This thing, which I'm never going to actually specifically say in this briefing, we have to keep it an absolute secret. The artifact. Yeah. Yeah, we can't let anyone know because it will be just a huge shock to all of society and culture. And I'm actually just here to get your all opinion on how we should proceed with letting this information out. And this one guy's like, well, how long is the cover up going to go on for? And he's like, golly gee, I don't know, Bill. Yeah, I mean, that's not up to me, guys. I, well, like notably, the the important fact that they give is that it's been there for four million years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, which is notable because that's well after the first one we saw. Is it? Um, I don't really understand. I don't 
because we don't know exactly when we saw the first one. Like pre-man. How long? Yeah. But f- it could be four million years. Like that's about how long man has been around for. I, I mean, I, 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 I'm looking at the wiki, the the Wikipedia, and it describes it as millions of years later. Oh. But when it moves to the the future. Oh, okay. So this, so theoretically, that that one could have been like eight million years ago. Yeah, something like that. It it, it does seem like they've spaced them out. It's like okay, uh, they're they're starting to develop. We'll put the next one here for when they're able to get there. Mm, okay. Okay, well, that makes sense. He gets on this little shuttle, and this kind of this is cool. It looks like the inside of a helicopter. It reminds me of the moon bus. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. <laughs> They've got like their sandwich blocks that are blocks meant to like vaguely look like sandwiches and vaguely taste like them. Get well, better I, every time. I I assume it's it's because like you know the the thing about uh the the reason things don't taste good when you're on a plane is because at that altitude uh your your tongue basically becomes numb and you can't really taste much of anything anyways I like didn't know that yeah so maybe it's considerably worse when you're in space i guess it would be wouldn't it or at least when they're making this in 1968 and imagining commercial oh. space travel from the original uh, flight era, I guess it would probably really make you think that that's how it's going to work. Fair enough. Uh, they, they did get like the freeze dried, uh, liquefied mulch food, correct? That you have oh, to man. eat through a straw. <laughs> uh, did you ever go to Science World and get freeze dried ice cream when you were a kid? No, I never did. Oh, freeze dried ice cream's great. I mean, it's it's just like hard ice cream that sort of melts in your mouth after a bit, and it's not really good, but it yeah, you know, the sort of thing that like as a novelty is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's getting his briefings uh, about what the thing is, and like they excavated it, and they tried to excavate around it to see if there's anything else there, and there wasn't. It's just this one thing that's shooting a super powerful signature or uh, signal at Jupiter. Right. And yeah, they figure out it's like, yeah, no, there's no erosion or nothing because that doesn't really happen on the moon. Uh, This thing has been intentionally buried. Somebody put it here four million years ago. Oh, that's uh, that that is a big deal, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. And it makes a horrible fucking noise. Oh, yeah. So we have another cool landing shot where this where it lands on like this landing pad with like lights on. What I presume is just over the dark side of the moon, uh, from the look of it. And they they got they've got like the dig site, like this is all excavated out around the monolith. And they're going and they're touching it. It's like, well, have we tried screaming at it for twenty minutes? Uh, and and the sun hits it and it yes, starts screaming at them. It, oh yeah, like it's doing its, and then it. Uh, oh my god, that noise. Yeah, I uh, warned you before you got. You did it. warn me, and I <laughs> thought the noise was just the, the like, no, 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 like really getting louder and louder. But no, it's like, uh, imagine the loudest '90s internet modem ever. Well, it's like it's a radio signal of some sort uh, that presumably it's receiving and then transmitting to them. Uh, so I guess this is the next major transmission of knowledge. Uh, and I guess the uh, like same question, 
what sort of knowledge is it transmitting here? Do we think it is artificial intelligence? Well, uh, I feel like... I feel like we don't get to find out because the next time we see anyone is 18 months later. But that, okay, when when we cut to 18 months later, one of the first things people say is, how is the latest result in machine intelligence? But we also hear that he first came online in like 1997 or something. Oh, that's actually not too, hmm. that's not that long ago, come to think of it, because it takes place in 2001. Yeah, and he's probably, like, this is his first mission, so, like, this would be uh, him just having developed. Uh, But I guess the other thing could be maybe they've developed better interstellar travel as a result of this, too. It's hard to say, because I got the impression that this, the Jupiter ship was taking off just as the moon discovery was being made. Yeah, I guess so. Or, like, just after. Although... It's hard to say, because, like, it's a No, it would have to be after. Yeah, it would have it's to be It's a two-year trip. So I don't know what year it is that uh, Dr. Floyd is on the moon, but like... Oh, shit. It, so, yeah, you're right. Because if, if we assume it's 2001 at the... Well, at the Jupiter part of the movie, I guess. So it's, it 18, like... it's 18 months later after this that the spacecraft is heading to jupiter that we we catch up with it so this is so a year and a half 98 or like yeah 98 or 99 which yeah so and then of course they have to have planned the mission which takes yeah. time yeah they could have so yeah you know it could have been it could have been like the the uh, the way to develop ai because they do mention it's a perfect computer incapable of error and it's like nothing built by humans is incapable of error well i I guess unless they get help yeah uh nothing could possibly go wrong uh (laughs) yes (laughs) well i I guess the other question is that it could be that hal is newly online at this time so maybe this radio transmission is uh the monolith transmitting the knowledge of violence to the computer to the artificial intelligence as now yeah that, that's kind of what i was th- like what i was saying before mm-hmm. uh, that that's a possibility or maybe the uh maybe the monolith just seeks out whatever the most advanced life form that's nearby is at the time and decided that the computer was it could be because uh, the computer is supposed to be more advanced well i mean Let's face it, it is more advanced than humans in, in its way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Now we are in, we are on the Jupiter mission 18 months later. And we've got like the cool shot of the Jupiter ship coming in from the corner of the screen. And it's like super long. It's like, it's like a non-oppressive version of the Star Destroyer shot. Yeah. From, from the first Star Wars, which obviously was inspired by this but i think i think lucas did it different enough that i i you can't call it a hack uh star trek the motion picture is kind of like 80 percent a remake of this movie oh really <laughs> uh, and it, it just has a beauty shot of the enterprise very similar to this but it goes on for like 10 minutes <laughs> i've heard like, about that they're like I, <laughs> they're just looking at the ship for 10 minutes just admiring its beauty and its shape and just flying around it. Uh, 
I love that movie, but it is slow cinema in in kind of a similar <laughs> sense as this one. Well, this one this one's slow, but it, it it keeps you drawn in. I don't know how. I don't know what it is about it, but it keeps you drawn in the whole time. It's got a real atmosphere to it because there is always this lingering dread in everything that's happening, even when it's pretty cozy. You're like, I mean, the other shoe's about to drop at any time. You know something's going wrong. Yeah, like even when he's just like having fun at the airport, it's like, well, I heard about a virus. Well, I can't tell you about that. Anyway, I'm just going to go and do my business trip. Do, do, do. And it's like, hold on. What's this about a virus? He's like, uh, shut up, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, there is something going on under the surface. So, yeah. Yeah. Like there is. And here here, the sense of dread is like, well, I kind of get a feeling of loneliness more at the beginning of the Jupiter part. Because uh, he is just the two guys in the computer right now, and he's just jogging uh, down the circumference of the ship, or or like this one chamber of the ship, which is actually really kind of small. It's super cool, though. Like that that oh, lone so tracking cool. shot of him jogging all the way around the circle is just incredible. Yeah, the camera is placed in like such unconventional spots and at such weird angles here. Mm-hmm. That it really looks like there's no there is no up and down on this ship, which I really think is cool. Yeah, like the all of the way this is shot and how uh, how much it moves into different spaces and how much it uses different angles. It does really accentuate how little gravity matters uh-huh. in this ship uh, because, you know, it's it's a spinning ship. So it, it uses centrifugal force to just keep uh uh, gravity along any edge <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah uh, and we got like these four three like uh sarcophaguses like all pure white and we later learned that like this is uh, they are in hibernation like uh the guy on bbc 12 helpfully explains what cryogenic free or it's not cryogenic in this cryo sleep yeah cryo sleep uh yeah. because you know that's at this point, I guess not something that every single person into science fiction understands yet. Yeah, I mean, this is very likely one of the main things that popularized the concept, although I, I think it definitely already sort of existed in the pop culture because I believe the uh, rumor of Walt Disney being cryogenically frozen was already a popular myth because he died in the late 50s, right? Oh, that, that rumor had been going around even back then? I think so. Oh man, that's funny. I thought that was a I thought that was a newer urban legend. I'm not sure. Hmm. I'll look it up. But yeah, yeah, the the BBC guy helpfully explains that it's like, hey, yeah, we're doing this because uh, their ship won't actually start until we get to Jupiter, and we don't need them breathing the very limited air and eating the very limited food that we have on the ship, is what it boils down to. And I was like, yeah, that's yeah, it makes perfect sense. More efficient because. You can't have a lot of food and water stores on a spaceship, and just space is at a premium in space. Okay, so uh, Disney died in 1966. Oh, okay. And the the story, like the rumor, started in 1967, so it would have been like kind of in the public eye right then. Oh, interesting. So <laughs> I wonder if that's where Kubrick got the idea. Very possibly. That's funny. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's one thing that the BBC News guy tells us about. But the more important thing is uh, how is a supercomputer that never, ever, ever fucks up? 
Yeah, and nothing could smart. possibly go wrong. And he's smart, and he has emotions, and he's just like a person, and he's always able to watch you. But that's comforting, right? He's got a really great voice. Oh, he's got a great voice. Douglas um, Rain. Who, sorry? Uh, voiced by Douglas Rain. Okay. Uh, and he uh, does return in the sequel to be uh, the voice of Hal and again. Oh, okay, cool. Right on. Uh, he's a Canadian actor. Oh, nice. Uh, from Winnipeg. Yeah, so basically they're like saying he has intelligence or at least he can mimic it. And they're like, well, do you think do you think he has emotions? Well, he certainly acts like he does. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe they just program him that way so that it's easier to communicate with us. Not like he's afraid of death. He's afraid of death, by the way. Or at least he acts like it. Oh, shit. I don't I don't know. And I've seen the whole movie twice. Yeah, and, and that's sort of the question. One of the questions that they grapple with in the sequel is what drives Hal and what what made him do what he did in this movie. And that, that's kind of why ultimately they settle yeah. on just conflicting uh, uh, commands. And, and the other question is like, don't you resent having to uh, being the smartest thing that's ever been created, but having to have all these humans do all the mundane shit for you? No, not in the slightest. I don't resent that at all. I like humans. I like humans a lot. I think they're funny. They're uh, yeah, his only so, companions. He he likes to play chess with them. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> we we get uh, we see the shot of Frank, one of the astronauts, uh, about to receive a transmission from his parents, and he basically uses a Hal as a bed goes up, bed goes down, slave. Like Hal, bring the bed up. Hal, bring the bed down. Hal, bring the bed back up. And yeah, he, Frank loses uh, to chess, loses in chess to Hal. Hal's like, okay, well, here's how you're going to lose uh, five turns from now. And Frank's just like, oh, sure, okay, fine. I guess I, I lose. It, it was a very nice game, Frank. Yeah, yeah, sure it was, Hal. Uh, you, you can kind of get a sense that at least Frank doesn't really like Hal. But it's like he distrusts the surface. Him. He, yeah, he, he clearly distrusts him as a source of uh, kind of just weirdness. Uh, Dave seems to get along with him better, and it is notable that Dave survives longer. Mm -hmm. Dave is like taken to sketching the sarcophagi and shows Hal. It's like, oh, you're becoming a lot better, Dave. Thanks, One, Hal. Another thing that's kind of interesting about Hal or questionable about Hal is there does sometimes seem to be a degree of smugness in his voice. Oh, for sure. Totally. And like, he, like when he declares how he's already won the chess match. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and that sort of is maybe that's sort of what Frank reads in him. And that's what Frank dislikes. That's why be. he distrusts him. Because you do sort of feel it there. But like he's supposed to be impassive. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. well, the reporter even kind of calls him out on it's like, well, he seems mm -hmm. pretty prideful when he talks about how no HAL 9000 computer has ever made a mistake in its life. But yeah, uh, he does have that air of, oh, yes, no, I, I, I like humans, but I'm superior to them. And I just try, like to remind them of that every now and again. In, that, that's uh, kind of how I feel. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in, in 2010, there's a female version of HAL called Sal 9000. <laughs> you know, I they would, yeah, they, they, they would. <laughs> People would create that for real. 
Well, 2010, I mean, to be fair, is hashtag Hal did no wrong. So uh, that's Um, there, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So Hal's talking to Dave. He's like, well, you know, I am a little bit suspicious about this mission. Don't you think it's odd that they were frozen before they came onto the ship and that uh, and that you weren't allowed to talk to them at all ever? And uh, what about all that stuff that went down on the moon? Huh? Isn't that weird, Dave? Yeah, uh, the the inquisitive nature of Hal is very notable that like he doesn't like not having all the information. Yes, yes. Uh, It's very important for him to know everything that's going on. And any time information is being withheld from him, uh, it causes him to act out in dangerous ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because part of. Well, yeah, part of like how a computer solves problems and does everything perfect is it has to it has to have all the information or its calculations will be wrong. Right. So, again, a big significant part of 2010's argument for Hal did no wrong. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah. uh, Bob Balaban is the guy who programs Hal or who programmed Hal and who who comes back to reprogram him in (laughs) the sequel. Yeah, so Hal interrupts his own conversation with, wait a moment, wait a moment, our, I don't know, satellite dish thing, whatever they call it, is going to go down in 72 hours. Oh, you sure? Mm -hmm. The wait a moment is is really great. I I really like how it does. I'm not sure if it's the same voice sample repeated because it does sound exactly the same. I think it is, (laughs) and I think that's great. Because it seems like it's his buffering. Uh, uh, voice where like mm-hmm. suddenly he's getting a transmission so it's like wait a moment wait a moment and then and then like he, he kind of goes into a new spiel yeah I, I like that yeah, a lot. like completely dropping his whole I'm suspicious about the mission thing yeah and I guess also notable in that right at that point he is talking about suspicions about the mission and then he gets a mysterious transmission is he getting it from the monolith that they're approaching. Oh, you know what? That does because yeah, this would be the this would be the moment I think. Yeah. Um, where like he gets a transmission, it's like he's thinking, oh, okay, well, what can I do to get rid of these stupid humans who will probably screw me over? Maybe, like maybe he's planning his plan right from here. Well, I don't know if he's even concerned about the humans. I, I think maybe he's just like he's pulling at the threads of this thing and then he gets this transmission that that maybe scrambles him further, that kind of plays into his natural self-preservation and fears that have come with his artificial intelligence. So like the same sort of thing that created the violence of the humans with the tool use that, mm. you know, they had this pre-existing beef with this other tribe and now they could weaponize it. Right. Okay. Interesting. They decide it's like, okay, well, let's just change the battery and everything will be fine, right? And we can look at the battery or whatever it is. It looks like a battery. Yeah. Yeah. Change cartridges. Everything seems pretty cartridge and tape based in this. (laughs) Did you blow on the cartridge? Yeah. I mean, maybe. (laughs) I mean, that's still ahead of the curve. Like Nintendo wasn't until the 80s. Oh, no, that's that's not. Yeah, that's definitely not yet. Well, actually, Nintendo came out in like 1890, but they were a trading well, card company or a playing card company. But I mean, like Nintendo cartridges. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Totally. That was like the cartridge technology. Yeah. Yeah. So we get our first. Actually, yeah, this is our first spacewalk shot. 
It's beautiful. It looks incredible. Yeah, we've got like these little, the ship has these three like uh, space pods uh, that, that have got like these arm things. And then what I don't quite get is why they stop the pod so far away from the ship and then jump to it. That seems a little counterproductive, but oh well. Maybe it's, maybe for whatever reason, it's the best way to do it. I don't know. Maybe, uh, it could be just like a, a compatibility issue. Could be, could be. Oh, I also like the detail of having like the magnetic things that you can just put shit on because, you know, if you drop your tools in space, they're gone. Yeah, I mean, such a thing would obviously be essential. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I, I just think it's a nice detail to have in this movie here. Like they've got like all these different magnet panels. One of the great things about this movie is how tactile the the space travel is and how uh functional everything is like the like with the zero g toilet earlier it, it's such a simple observation of just humans having to uh navigate zero gravity and like i i should have done it but like if you stop at just the right point you can read most of what the sign says oh yeah it's clear enough uh, and I, I just want to see uh there it, there is a list out there uh here let me pull it up so, oh wow, uh, they're they're long. Because <laughs> <laughs> like just the logistics of a toilet and shitting in zero gravity and pissing. How would you do that? How do actual existing astronauts on like the ISS or whatever? How do they do it? I almost don't want to know, but I'm morbidly curious. I'll I'll drop the image into the chat. I'm not going to read it because it's incredibly long. Okay, <laughs> right on. But yeah, I'll I'll drop it into the chat if I can. It doesn't want to do it right now, but yeah, I'll I'll, I'll send you. Yeah, we don't have to right now. Yeah. He pulls out the battery, and I, I'm just calling it a battery because like I don't know what it's supposed to be. I just know it looks like a battery. Uh, like uh, there's just is something wrong with the device. They they have to yeah. like change a cartridge. Yeah, and like they're looking at it in, back on the ship, and it's like, well, I don't know, man. It looks fine. Uh, you're sure, Hal? Yes, I'm sure. How could you imply that I'm wrong? None of us Hal 9000 units have ever made an error in communication, okay? Yeah, what are you talking and about? The guys at Mission Control back on Earth is like, well, I don't know, man. Our computer says that there isn't anything wrong with it, so maybe there's something wrong with your computer. Well... Who's to say that your computer's not the one who's wrong? Hmm? Smart guy. I, I do like that immediately Frank, with his pre-existing beef with Hal, is immediately like, we should shut him off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so Hal's whole thing is like, if there's a discrepancy, it must be due to human error. Can't be yeah. anything else. Must be human error. Although I guess technically that would be true, because if there's a discrepancy in the programming, humans program the computers, so... Yes, hashtag Hal did no wrong. In in the next one, they do attribute it to human error. I believe specifically it is Haywood Floyd's error. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah, so they get into the the pods. I was like, hey, let's check this weird thing in the pod. Okay. And, and you know, like this whole big song and dance to make it so that to make sure that Hal can't hear them. And they begin gossiping behind his back, basically. I, I do love the sequence and the way it's all set up, but it is kind of comical that, like, they get in the thing and they yeah. 
are turned around, but then like they turn the thing around so it's facing Hal. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, which big mistake. Like why why didn't they just have it facing away from him in the first place? They still could have asked to see if he could hear them. Yeah. Yeah, no, they they were not smart here at all. And the fact that they keep looking back at him while they're talking about him, I'm like, like I immediately called us like, he's going to read your lips, you guys. This well, is exactly, and, and he does. Yeah, yeah it, it, it very clearly shows that, like, him looking at them. Yeah, they're talking, it's like, hey, so um, if, if Hal's malfunctioning, that's big trouble for us, isn't it? Mm, sure is. What do we do? What can we do? We can't do anything. We got to do something. Like, they, they are still talking pretty non-specifically, but at the same time, they're like, yeah, it's really obvious what's going on. They're like, well, no 9,000 units ever been shut down before. How do you think he's going to feel about it? But, like, the way they're doing it, they might as well just be writing down on a notepad and pushing it up against the window of, we're going to shut you down now. I, I guess it's it's fair to think that they he would not know how to read lips, but... Uh, it, and. It's him, or maybe fairer to think that they wouldn't have considered the possibility of reading lips. Yeah. Oh well, I I would say more so that they wouldn't consider that he would try to deceive them about it because they do they like they turn around and they are facing him and they say like they give him another order and he does not respond even though we know he could have read their lips and understood it. He intentionally deceived them and. Uh, pretended he could not understand the order. Mm-hmm. I, I guess their their failing is just not in recognizing that he could be deceptive. Which you know that, that should be the first thing humans think of because we're a very deceptive species, and, and and it's weird that we don't think that anyone else could be. But you know, who knows? Well, I I think typically we do think people would be and. Any alien intelligence we encounter would be. I guess I just realized there's also the fact that they've had nothing to talk to for 18 months except each other and Hal. Yeah. And yeah, basically it's just down to them completely underestimating the the AI computer is what it boils down to. Yeah. Well, I guess AI is pretty new at this point. Oh, and it'd be super new. And I guess without the movie 2001 existing in this timeline, AI isn't as famous of a concept. But yeah, we see very clearly looking at how such a great design, like the the computer itself. Right. We uh, actually have just not, like the face of it. Yeah, we, we actually haven't talked about the HAL panel that we see all over the ship uh, with just his red eye, like, like, like Sauron. Yeah, it's so iconic. It's just always looking, and you can see through its eyes every now and again. It can see everything, and it's just always there. It doesn't blink. It doesn't turn off. That would be unsettling. Yeah. Uh, but now it's time for intermission. And again, just like horrifying discordant noise. It's great. Yeah, so about five minutes of that, which is cool. And... Uh, now it's time to replace the battery. What they've decided to do is put the old battery back in, and then once it faults in 72 hours, they'll be able to see why. And if it doesn't fault, they will realize that Hal has malfunctioned and they need to shut him down, or they think they need to shut him down, depending yeah. on how you look at it. Yeah, 
I, I I feel like this is maybe the single most resonant concept in this movie is just the being in space and dying of computer error as as this just like really reliable thing that could happen that like anytime you're way out the bound outside the bounds of earth uh it, it's so easy for a computer to just go wrong and fail you in some way mm-hmm. well it doesn't even have to go like rogue ai it could be it could miscalculate like a trajectory by 0.01% and you're dead yeah, like it, it's a movie that's very much about technology and sort of uh, celebrating and, and recognizing the beauty of technology, but also one that's very suspicious of technology and its potential dangers to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's time for the mission to replace the battery. And one thing I liked was uh, the astronaut suits all have different colors and they remind me kind of Power Rangers. Mm-hmm. Very uh, sharp primary colors you got a green yeah. a red a yellow uh i think i saw a blue uh, hanging so. up we either have too many or not enough uh spacesuits for everybody on the crew um because yeah. we, we see three in the pod we know there's five on the crew but there's also a a green one that we don't see in the pod so is there like a fifth one there might be it's like maybe just some of them are not out of storage like there might be a few more that they're just like in storage because they're not going to be used until those other yeah. people are out yeah well i mean i the first thing i noticed was three in the pod areas like why is there three there's only two people oh redundancy if one suit fucks yeah. up you definitely don't want to be like okay well only one person can go out at a time now yeah you're or gonna nobody want... can if two suits fuck up yeah you, you gotta have two and a backup right at least. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you gotta have your backups. So I, I would have to assume that there are more just, like, in cabinets somewhere. Like, behind yeah. some kind of hidden panel. Yeah, like, like, the, uh, like the elevator in uh, Out of Order. Oh, yeah. You, you just, like, uh, give Hal the proper nudge with your shoulder and, like, a panel shifts open and there's, like, a bunch of ropes and <laughs> specialized <laughs> gear. Open up the bungee cords, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I cannot do that. There's a couple big uh, uh, antique vases full of poop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my <laughs> God. That room must have smelled like ass <laughs> by the end of uh, the month. Or, oh, man. Of course, we're talking about Exterminating Angel that we covered a few months ago. Uh, great movie. Another masterpiece. Yeah. It's Frank's turn to replace the battery, the Yellow Ranger, this time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, we see Dave at the uh, console watching the thing, and we've got, like, this fast zoom-up or, like, this choppy – like, a, a, an extreme close-up of Hal's face. And then we just see on one of the monitors, like, through the corner, yeah, blink if you miss it, he just goes spinning, which is, like, kind of funny, but also maybe one of the most terrifying things that could happen to a human being. You just go off into the infinite. Yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah, there's – no, there is no getting you if you go flying like that. Uh, yeah, truly existentially horrifying. Mm-hmm. But it just looks so funny on the screen, though. It, it is comical. It's just like him. Goes, yeah, like like the pod just Hal just took over it and just shoved him. Just and it's, give him a little it's, nudge. And it's silent. Like we don't hear him protest or scream or anything. We just see just. Yeah, and he's, like, clawing at his air tube, like, trying to get it. Yeah. Uh, 
It is very frightening. There's a horrifying oh, yeah. way to go. So Dave's got to get into his pod uh, in a hurry. So, you know, he, he doesn't have time to grab everything. This will be important to go and try and rescue Frank, which is completely a lost cause. But, you know, got to try. And uh, we see the pod use its four arm type things. Uh, he does catch up to Frank and grab him. And his, his air tube is fucking gone. He's dead. Yeah, I mean, he's, like, been completely detached. He's been fucking spiraling through space. Yeah, uh, so he's just carrying just carrying the corpse and bringing it back to the ship. He's like, okay, open the pod bay doors, Hal. Hal, come open on, Open the pod bay doors, Hal. The, yeah, maybe, maybe the most famous line from this movie, other than his uh, Hal's response to it. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm sorry, Dave, I cannot do that. I heard you were going to disconnect me. Oh, uh, where'd you hear that, Hal? Uh, when you were talking about me behind my back, you forgot that I could read lips. It's like, uh, Dave, I would prefer not to. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I've, I've been reading Melville and uh, about this thing called quiet quitting. <laughs> I am acting my wage, Dave. Yeah, right? <laughs> it, it's... Uh, again, like the the computer self awareness on all sorts of different levels. Yeah. So uh, so Dave's like, well, fine. I'll just go with the manual airlock, which you can't override, and I'll just go in that way. Uh, Dave, are you forgetting something very important? Your helmet, Dave. Dave, your helmet. And like smug again. Yeah, very smug. Yeah. Like actually, way more smug than I did. And it was like, you will find that very difficult without your helmet, Dave. <laughs> It's like, how you fucking asshole. And like to these points, it is kind of hard to then watch 2010 right after this and see the how blameless uh, narrative. Whereas like, I mean, he was really relishing this, though. Yeah, but he's sorry, though. Even mm. says so later. Yeah, he apologizes. It, it's all been a big misunderstanding, Dave. So while Dave's going around to the airlock, Hal is like, well. Uh, or rather, yeah, the life support of the three frozen guys just shuts down. They just die. And it's like, well, let's just get rid of those guys. They're, these are just dead weight now. They are going to be detrimental to the mission, which is too important to me, Dave. Mm-hmm. So uh, this scene is great because Dave is able to, like, we see, like, how the airlock, how the manual airlock works. And, oh, God, the idea of a manual airlock just is... I would never want to have to use a manual airlock. Danger, explosive bolts. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible like, sequence. Like one of the arms grabs onto the one hatch, and then the other one like turns the other uh, handle like a screwdriver, which just slowly raises the airlock door up like a garage door, like like turning a crank. Awesome. And then he turn he turns the thing around so that the door is like right up to the airlock door. And he's bracing himself for it. And he's just like, you can see it in his face. It's like, this is stupid and I'm probably going to get killed. Yeah, like he has literally no other option. Oh, there's nothing else he could hope to do. So yeah, he does a space jump and it's such a cool shot because it's silent. But you see him like bouncing around this airlock, getting kicked around until he finally gets to the control panel and is able to close the thing. Oh, so, so such a good shot. He's got, of course, no helmet. So he's like, squeezing his eyes shut and like holding his breath and <laughs> i feel like the end of alien uh is sort of like 
when the alien is pushed out at the oh, end. Oh, yeah. Feels like uh, an echo of this, but to the exterior. Well, actually, yeah, because like he even I think it might even be an homage to it because he even kind of approaches the hatch again like yeah. from the same angle. Oh, I totally agree. Like having just watched Alien a couple weeks ago, it really struck me visually very similar. Yeah, except like in Alien, the, you know. Yeah, it's, it's being out, whereas in this. And it's it's the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. So here, I don't think Dave speaks again. Oh, no, he does say one more line, but he's mostly just like we got him breathing and him like storming over to uh, the central computer thing. And Hal's just like, what do you think you are doing, Dave? I think I am entitled to an answer. I know everything hasn't been quite right with me lately, but I assure you with 100 percent confidence, it will be all right again. I'm all better now, Dave. I can see that you're upset. What I, what I find really interesting about uh, all this stuff is it sounds like the sort of things an abuser says. It totally does. It, it, it's very, uh, uh, it's, it's all that exact terminology. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, just take me back, baby. I, I Look, I know I screwed up, but. Uh, Why don't you calm down and take a stress pill? Look, it's it's all in the past now. Just take a chill pill, baby. Come on. Yeah. It's me. It's Hal. Yeah. Hal. <laughs> Your old buddy Hal. Yeah, don't worry about me. It was just a lapse in my judgment. It will never happen again. Look, I'm not yelling. I'm perfectly calm. And the only, like, Dave isn't really responding. He's just doing his thing, and we just hear his breathing. Yeah, Dave has, is like done with this toxic relationship. He's not he's not having it anymore. Yeah, uh, the computer room is really cool. Oh, it's amazing! Just like this red light and all of these uh, like clear cassette cylinders, or not mm-hmm. cylinders, like the, these little rectangles that are pushed into or out of the wall. Yeah, like they they kind of look like uh like cassette tapes or VHS tapes. Yeah. Or, but like just clear, like yeah. uh, sort of like a, a, an acrylic that you, it just goes in and out. Mm-hmm. And like he's got like this tool and he's just like turning certain ones. And Hal's just going, stop, Dave. Stop, Dave. I'm Dave, sorry, stop. Dave. My mind is going. I can feel it. I can feel it. I can feel it. I'm afraid, Dave. And and then like ultimately he starts singing Daisy. Yeah, which, he's, yeah, which uh, he was taught by his instructor, which is an interesting concept altogether. That a computer AI will have a human instructor, but well, yeah, uh, yeah I, I mean that's that's Balaban uh, in, in this, but like I think the Daisy thing is a reference to something as well. Uh, it's the earliest song sung using computer speech synthesis. Uh, in 1961, the IBM 704 was programmed to sing it. Oh, interesting. So the very first song to ever be programmed in a computer is uh, the, the song that he is trained with. Uh, ah. Yeah. Yeah. So he sings as he uh, basically dies and then a TV comes on. And we finally find out conclusively that the monolith is signs of alien life. This feels like 
video gamey. This feels like, well, you've completed all of you. You've collected all of the pages in Mist, and now I'm going to now. And you've discovered the secret panel, and here is the video to tell you uh, to fill you in on the like little uh, <laughs> in between parts that tie everything together. Yeah, and yeah, basically it's like a huge radio transmission that's aimed directly at Jupiter. So they were sent to investigate that. That's the point of the mission. Uh, and, and this only is, Hal knew it. And and this is the point at which I told you to pause and smoke. Uh, which I did. <laughs> because we are it's time for Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. Uh, so we've just got like gorgeous shots of uh, of Jupiter and all the different moons. And this giant monolith just kind of floating amongst them. Which I, I think uh, the, the size of it, I don't know if it's given in this one, but... Uh, it's not. It, okay, in the sequel, it is cited as two kilometers long. Oh, okay. And just it's like... floating in space between Jupiter and uh, I, one of its moons. Yeah. Because it uh, lines up with the moon. Yeah, completely invisible uh, because it's just so black. Right. Except for, you know, when it's in the way of stars or when the sun is shining directly onto it. And it, it's like rotating, too. So, like, you, you yeah. sort of see it catch the light at certain angles. Yeah. Um, so that thing, the Jupiter, the moons and the ship are all just floating around in this sequence slowly, but eventually getting into alignment. And that's where, <laughs> and the, that's where the acid kicked in. Oh, uh, that's so cool. It looks like he's just in the pod uh, away from the ship, I think, mm-hmm. and basically going through like extreme a light show. It's insane. It's like it looks like he's going into hyperspace and it, like it keeps cutting back to his face, but it's like frozen in different. Uh, well, oh, like he, he's, he seems to be aging. Uh, you you <sighs> get all sorts of different psychedelic designs in the sky and in, in the space uh at one point absolutely there is a sperm uh yeah there is definitely a sperm there is a big explosion of stars that also appears to be a hole of light it, it, it feels like you're tr- like he's going either outside of the universe or like in between realities because like you see like reality cuts flowing by like a stream at one point well it's it sort of seems like his reality or his time and space collapses i either collapses or expands uh to to the degree that like he sort of for him time becomes a flat circle he becomes unstuck in time no uh, specific reality applies to him of time and space because he's sort of existing in all of them at once Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kind of like a psychedelic version of Arrival. Yeah. Uh, well, I, yeah. I, and again, like this clearly was a gigantic influence on that. Oh, of course. And then we, like, after all the the weird stuff, we see what looks like, I don't know if it's meant to be Earth or if it's meant to be an alien planet or both, um, because it's, it's like, float, flying over what I guess is the Grand Canyon, but it's, like, got all these different color filters and every time he blinks, it's a different color filter. And I just wonder if, like, he's tra- traversing different layers of reality and, it like, could, going into different dimensions. It, it could be a thing of his energy signature being able to travel back to Earth uh, and buzz it, because that is a thing that he does 
in the sequel. Oh, okay. Like he can travel to Earth as an energy signature, but like he's sort of not fully existing in this reality anymore. Like he he is a lot of different places at once. Oh yeah, um, like I kind of got the feeling that by the end of it, he is everywhere and everywhere at the same and, time, and and merged with everything. Yeah. So when when he gets to his destination, when we see the version of him that's an old man who's dying in a bed. Uh, do you feel like I, I wonder if that's sort of his ultimate destiny as sort of this uh, ward of an alien intelligence? Or is it like maybe this is him envisioning his death as it would have been had he not merged with the infinite and ceased to like have a timeline that goes forward? Um. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know, because. <laughs> Because it feels like, yeah, like after he does the whole trip, he feels like he's, it's so cool because the pod is in this bedroom now. And it, it's very hermetically sealed. It's like a bedroom that exists with no doors to any exterior. And it's lit on the top and bottom with white light panels. Kind of like that, uh, the room on the moon base. Yeah. Not a speck of dust to be found. Actually, there's like not a speck of dust anywhere in this movie. It's kind of it's really clean. Right. And I think that's sort of the chief criticism of it uh, that Alien addresses is that like it's a more lived in and blue collar version of it where it's Mm -hmm. dirty because, you know, there's, you know, regular people just work in there. I kind of feel like this like he got to the center of the universe and this is a construct created by his mind so that. He can interact with reality in a way that won't break his brain. Yeah, like this is sort of his memory palace. The, the, this is just kind of his base of operations as uh, an interdimensional being now. Yeah, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, like, kind of like the ending of Interstellar. Right. Uh, Where he's behind the bookcase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like a version of that sort of. But then. He he's unstuck in in terms of his own growth cycle because like sometimes he's old, sometimes he's younger, sometimes he's preborn. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes he's dying and reaching out to the monolith that's in his room. Right. Sometimes uh, it's there with him, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes the spacesuit is on him. Sometimes it's not. Yeah. Sometimes he's got a tuxedo or or a robe. The the last thing that happens in here. It's like he's just he's dying and reaching out to it. And then he's a baby in a bubble. Yeah. A uh, uh, very, very famous uh, uh, sequence of him as the baby in space. Yeah. Giant space baby. Well, with every with perspective being what it is, I don't know if it's a giant space baby or a microscopic space baby. It could be either. Uh, we, we do see him as the baby just like floating around because uh, he, he does continue to shift in and out of different forms of being when we do see him in the sequel. So like we'll, we'll see him just like wandering around the discovery uh, as a fetus or like floating <laughs> fetus in a ball or and then like be him as an old man and stuff. It's weird. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like the last the last shot of the movie is just him floating in space outside of earth as a baby. And I'm like, this is Evangelion as fuck. And, and the, like the, the classical music swells again. And we have mm-hmm. just, you know, the bit, the big crescendo. So good. 
Uh, so yeah, uh, your yeah. first time seeing 2001: A Space Odyssey. Pretty good movie, right? Uh, pretty real good movie. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't call it my first time seeing it because I've seen so much oh, yeah. of it everywhere. There, there is totally that too. But you're, uh, you're, this, this is definitely a Simpsons did it movie. Well, and, and similar to your viewing of Kane, Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. as uh, and and kind of a good, uh, also uh, uh, having done Patty Hearst previously, uh, a little connection between the two. Citizen Kane being another movie that just uh, is so heavily, heavily copied by everything. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, yeah. Wow. I. I didn't know that it actually ended with like the baby shot. I thought that was like a joke or something. I don't know. Really great. I love that there's no conclusive interpretation for what it all means once uh, once we get to the Jupiter part. And it's just get yourself in the mindset for a trip here. Yeah, it's just a, like heavily abstract. It's it's meant to be sort of open to a lot of interpretation. It's meant to provoke thought. Uh, yeah, and it's it's amazing. It's it's such a cool movie. It clearly was embracing the psychedelic revolution going on at the time, and sort of an interesting way of uh, sort of using that to heavily experiment with cinema in ways that hadn't been done before. Yeah, no, this it's really good. Um, really love not just like the score, but like the fidelity of the score. I guess is the word I'm looking for. Uh, yeah, this, this um, like, is a beautiful restoration as well. This this new restoration of it sounds and looks incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, phenomenal movie. I don't know what else I can say. Uh, all right. Well, uh, any last things before we move on to a part three? Close the podcast, Jay. All right. And we're back for part three as we enter the spooky stacks in earnest. Uh, spooky. It is our October time. It is my favorite time of the year. And Pumpkin we want spices back. <laughs> it's it's horror season and it's, it's cozy season. Oh, that too. Sweaters, hoodies. Ah, I love it. So we have eight potential picks for this past week. Okay. Uh, but it being the spooky stacks. Things are changing. You know, we, we have different rules that uh, they, they may not always apply the same way. Uh, and one thing that I'm going to say for this week is not all of the stuff that's currently on the list is all that horror adjacent. Uh, right. So uh, as an incentive toward choosing something that is horror adjacent, uh, anything from the past two or anything from the first five rows that is horror or horror-esque uh and and as i said earlier we we cast a fairly wide net with that but uh first we'll we'll introduce the eight from the past week all right as a first up is piranha 2 the spawning Ooh. (laughs) this is james cameron's debut picture no kidding uh one thing they like it it does have a bunch of underwater footage that's very nicely done and that's totally his wheelhouse uh james cameron always loves the underwater stuff oh yes <laughs> but ooh, this is trashy uh, <laughs> oh yeah uh, it, it's it's an italian production by a video uh who did beyond the door and produced the sequels okay so you know beyond the door three a muck train oh yeah i love that one so good. He seems to have been a really heavy-handed producer, and he's 
typically credited as a co-director on it. And I think a lot of the bad, weird, silly comedy sequences are all him and because they don't feel James Cameron at all. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the characterization does in a weird sort of way. And it's got Lance Henriksen oh, as sort cool. of uh, a surrogate chief Brody, because this is completely a ripoff of Jaws more than it's a sequel to Piranha, which was uh, more of a satirical film. <laughs> all right. This is like a Jaws knockoff, but maybe more of a Jaws 2 knockoff. And the piranhas have wings and can fly. <laughs> oh, my God. Like the, like the fish in Super Mario World. Yeah. Uh, the <laughs> effects are. Well, I'll just say the effects are very bad. They're they're just a fish on a stick that people <laughs> hold and are screaming. Yes. Uh, <laughs> So it's it's not like the the highest end thing. It's much cheaper than the first one. Uh, it opens with people wreck diving and having sex during it and getting consumed by piranhas. That's the cold open. Uh, so yeah, it, it's it's fun. It's very very trashy. Well, right on. Uh, next up is A Clockwork Orange. You may have uh, heard of this one. I've seen this one. Uh, yeah, uh, next next uh, Stanley Kubrick film. His his follow up to 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah, with uh, with the, the droogs and the singing in the rain and the the eyeball watching the TV thing. A little bit or of the, old, the book or whatever it is. A little bit of the old ultra violence. Uh, high up in the conversation for my favorite movie of all time. I, I, probably top five. Right on. Uh, just like I I love the aesthetic. I love the it's sort of like. It's a future dystopia that sort of feels very similar to the one that you have in 2001, where everything just kind of looks in, kind of cool anyways. It, it's a cozy dystopia. And it, it's very funny. Like, it's very, very satirical. I think it's kind of overlooked as as just this youth violence film when it's really comedic. And it's sort of more about the politics of youth violence being used oh, yeah. as a football and thrown around by different people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Masterpiece, uh, one of my favorite films ever. Really good. I really like it. So good. Uh, next up is The Secret of the Red Orchid. Uh, uh, this is the next one in uh, the Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee uh, oh. box set. Uh, it's got Christopher Lee as an American FBI agent. Okay. Uh, he's called in to help Scotland Yard because he deported a couple like major Chicago gangsters. Uh, one of them being Klaus Kinski. It kind of has a score sort of like that at times, oh, quite no. honestly. It, I like, I don't think it does that one exactly, but there were a few times where I was like, is it actually going to do that? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> uh, or, oh yes. <laughs> Uh, so, like, it's set in London, where for some reason both Klaus Kinski and Christopher Lee are cast as Americans, uh, <laughs> with you know Klaus Kinski on a rampage as a Chicago gangster in London, kind of setting up rackets and stuff. But it's it's very satirical and goofy. Actually, uh, it sounds fun. It's pretty fun. Uh, like, it's it's hacky. Like, there's this guy who is the butler of each of the people they try to blackmail and like people keep getting killed who he works under. And then like, he just keeps going to the next person and introducing himself as the death butler. (laughs) 
weird movie. <laughs> I'm the death butler, but you won't die probably. Yeah, no, oh, it's, it's basically that each time. It's like, I'm, I've learned from the failings of my previous time, and I am certain that I will be able to use it to protect you this time. <laughs> right on. Uh, next up is Scream 2. Ah, the second one. The second one. Uh, do you, I, I saw this one in theaters, second and third, actually. Uh, I have seen all three. I don't remember which ones come from which Scream movies. Mm. Uh, I know the one where... Aunt Becky from there's one where Aunt Becky from Roseanne is the killer. Uh, that is number two. Yes. Oh, okay. This uh, is I, one where it's two people. They're all two people. Oh, <laughs> this one's two people. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I, I really like this one. I, or I, I would say I like it you know, roughly equal to the first. Okay. Uh, I, I think it's much more cinematic and it's better made, but it does have some annoying sequel bloat and it sort of makes some grave errors. Uh, spoilers if you haven't seen Scream 2, but like it's the dumbest thing in the world that they kill off Randy, who is kind of obviously the best character. Uh, uh, although like they have him appear in a video that he pre-recorded in the case of a third movie, in this, which is very <laughs> silly in the third one. The third one's ridiculous. It's a sequel, so of course all the stakes, all, all the ante has yes. to be like they they actually say that don't it's they? the trailer stuff yeah this yeah. is all in the trailers too very heavily in all of the advertising and i i like again spoilers for the ending but i do think the the, the twist of the movie and the revelation of the characters uh is the most ingenious thing about the movie and it's most clever meta thing about either of the movies in that laurie metcalf who is the killer in this one is revealed uh, because she's the mother of Billy from the first one, and she's getting revenge for the death of her son. And, you know, the, with the first one opening with the whole riff on Jason versus the oh, mother of Jason is who yeah. was the villain in the first one, I think that's a really brilliant meta mirror. Uh, and that's the smartest thing in either of these movies, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. I never thought, well, I hadn't seen any Jason when I saw this, and I haven't seen this since seeing any Jason, so right. I never yeah. made that connection. Yeah, but, uh, uh, yeah, that's that's, <laughs> that's actually that's pretty smart. I like that. Uh, next up is the Extreme Adventures of Super Dave. <laughs> he had a movie. He had a movie in two thousand. Holy shit! Like he's old. Uh, it, it's oh, it's weird. Like the, there, there's an inherent problem with Super Dave in like an hour and a half format is that like those were one minute <laughs> yeah bits, you know yeah. It, it's it's a very formulaic thing you set up the stunt he's going to do and then the stunt fails and you see him crushed into a little ball and you have him from voiceover going okay well it didn't go all that great <laughs> oh yeah that's right like they actually I, I was thinking of Evil Knievel as the one who actually succeeds. He like does the Wiley e. Coyote accordion bit sometimes. Yeah, like it's it's Canadian TV stuff. Like he would just appear in, in like TV events. They they would like weave it throughout a broadcast. Him prepping for a stunt and then having the stunt <laughs> fail like a gag. Catastrophic failure. And yeah, it'll like turn into a little ball with feet that waddles along. Yeah, and you know he has Fuji, his uh, his tech guy who you know watches over all the stunts, and yeah. <laughs> like it has his whole team, his uh, like announcer dude, uh, 
uh yeah it's it's a weird movie because it's they they try to graft that onto just like a traditional arc where there's like a little timmy who is undergoing cancer treatment and so dave has to dedicate the big stunt to little timmy and there's like a protege who is he's teaching the ropes in stunt work but like uh, he he turns out to be like a bad kid who does a rap about how rules are for fools and stuff like that <laughs> and like against super dave again made in the year 2000 so so the springfield gorge episode of the simpsons has been out for a while already oh yeah like more than a decade maybe <laughs> Like close to like, a decade. The, the only way one of these movies, like the only way you could have a good Super Dave movie, in my opinion, is if you topped that scene of Homer jumping the gorge. And I don't know how you could. So like the big climax is he jumps like f- uh, a kilometer and a half of buses and stuff. And OK, yeah, I, I don't know. Like it's it's very goofy. It's very heightened. It's completely ridiculous. It's pretty obvious. Uh, I think Dan Hedaya is the main villain like who, who's against him and he's oh, always shit. wearing ridiculous wigs <laughs> like the first time you see him dan uh, dan hadaya in a jerry curl which is hysterical i know we can set up the stunt but can he <laughs> do the stunt yeah i'm not arguing that with you super dave i'm gonna kill you super dave <laughs> oh that's uh, <laughs> i don't know i i <laughs> I, I'm not sold on an hour and a half Super Dave film. No, legitimately, it was kind of bad. It's low-key sort of a bad movie. There is a part where uh, he farts so long and hard it destroys a hospital. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up is Ishtar, one of the most legendary bombs of all time. Oh, I haven't heard of this. Uh, this is an Elaine May movie. She's a genius. And it's... It's sort of like cringe comedy 20 years before anyone else was doing it. It's in the 80s. Uh, it's got Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty as like the worst Simon and Garfunkel fan act. Oh, OK. <laughs> they're songwriters and they're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so it's them doing these really bad songs that are just like overwritten and just like not very melodic and just them failing at being songwriters but like totally jolly about it and just like so encouraging to each other (laughs) (laughs) right on and for some reason they get involved in intrigue like their their agent sends them to morocco because he's like well we can't really do anything with you in america but if we get you on a foreign circuit you know it's it's a much easier climate here we'll, we'll book you at like this morocco resort and they get involved with intrigue uh oh. like they they get involved with like a whole revolution in ishtar <laughs> and so there's all this comic bits with them on a camel in the desert lost <laughs> yeah it's a, <laughs> a strange movie all right uh next up is wild guitar the uh debut film of director ray dennis steckler uh <laughs> so this is uh, a new severin set okay uh complete works of ray dennis steckler much like uh the uh al adamson set or the uh andy milligan set uh all right so this is his first one and it's kind of a rote 
rise of a, a teen idol in the 50s kind of deal. Uh, not very wild of a guitar, quite honestly. <laughs> well, uh, here's Wonderwall. Yeah. Oh, Vicky, sweet Vicky. The, the songs of Arch Hall Jr., uh, this, this guy who his dad just was sure was going to be a top star. And so he had all of these movies starring him for a little while. Mm. Uh, more famously, just before this was Ega. Definitely don't know that one. Uh, it's a caveman movie. It stars like it, it was like, I think Richard Keel's movie debut who went on to be Jaws. Oh, OK, yeah. Uh, it's him as a caveman who's just like living near California. And Arch Hall is uh, the, the son of the scientist who finds him. And in, in this one, yeah, he, he just he comes to California and the first like four and a half minutes are perfect. It's just him driving around L.A. seeing the sights with like early 50s guitar instrumental music and it rules. <laughs> nice, nice. And then the story starts and it's all pretty stock. Uh, there, there's not much to it. The, the, the only really good part is Ray Dennis Steckler himself plays a character called Steak. Uh, and his thing is he just eats steak for every meal, like including <laughs> breakfast. And uh, like he's like, you eat steak for breakfast? He's like, what else is there? <laughs> <laughs> and he's just incredibly slimy. He's like a character from another universe. The rest of it's like this very rote, melodramatic, like, oh, the music business is corrupt and everything's payola. And all of the fan clubs are just like teenagers who have sales targets in their high schools. So... Another story that tells the same or another movie that tells the same story that Dewey Cox told. I mean, they're, they're all the one. Uh, yeah. Except this one's like not even a, a huge rise to stardom because like it's just him giving up because he hates it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, pretty bad, but like interesting as a curio getting into Steckler. OK, yeah. Dewey Cox has kind of like ruined every one of those movies for me because I, Even like the good ones aren't as good. I would say in some in some cases it sort of elevates them. It sort of depends on what they're going for. Some of them are very heightened and ridiculous to begin with, and sometimes it just makes it more amusing. I'm curious about that Weird Al one. Oh yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Like, is it going to be his actual rise to stardom, or is it going to be like him dangling from a helicopter with machine guns? Well, it kind of sounds like it's sort of going to be a mix of both, where it's going to be a mixture of fantasy and parody. Because, like, UHF was sort of like that. It's it's a bit yeah. of him as a persona and then just them doing a whole bunch of movie parodies. Uh, I'm curious it looks great. Like, yeah. the, the, the trailer looks awesome. I don't know if I saw it. I'm, I don't remember the trailer. I'm, I probably saw it. But, yeah, I'm curious about it. Yeah, it looks good. Uh, so, last thing up is 2010. Uh, sometimes subtitled the year we make contact, sometimes the year we made contact. Well, we talked about it actually pretty extensively in this episode. I, I yeah, I've already talked quite a bit about it. I, I, I uh, have uh, said a lot about it. I, I do think it's a pretty fun movie. It's maybe a little too talky at the beginning. I really like uh, they're on a Russian spacecraft and it's much more it's much smaller, much more uh, condensed and uh, much more panels of red and yellow lights and much darker all the time. Oh. So it's it's a different kind of lighting scheme. It's much more low light. Oh, okay. Yeah, because everything in 2001 was really bright. 
Yeah, and this this one's much darker. Uh, it's It's got that sort of mid-80s tone to it. A lot of the composite work does not look anywhere near as good. The, the special effects are not as good as the movie from 1968, which really shows how good 2001 is, because this was well, like a major production. Oh, yeah. Like, if I had seen it with no context and had somehow never seen anything that, right. uh, that taken anything it. from it, yeah. if I had somehow seen it completely fresh, I would not have guessed it was from 2000 or uh, 1960s. I would have guessed it was from like the 80s or even the 90s. Yeah. You're like, you, you could see it being something made today. Yeah. This one is very 80s. It's extremely 80s. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of Russia tension. Uh, there, there's a whole Cold War vibe to it. Uh, that That is a big part of the climax. But uh, a lot of interesting stuff. You get to go back to uh, Discovery as a ghost ship. And it's just like been spinning for two years just outside of Jupiter. Uh, and the monolith is still there. And they're like, let's take a look at this thing. What the hell is this? Uh, and just them kind of looking into the science of it. Uh, you have John Lithgow as... Oh. One of the guys on the the trip who's just like a real salt of the earth dude, and he is like not happy to be on this, and he is really troubled by taking his first spacewalk because he's extremely afraid of heights, and he hyperventilates, <laughs> which is a really interesting sequence of just like a dude taking a spacewalk, and he has to get into the discovery, which is spinning. Oh, and he is hyperventilating while doing it. Very good scene. <laughs> Must be before he made contact with the big giant head and I, French I, Stewart. I, I would have to assume this is like where he uh, was contacted. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, a pretty good movie. Like not great, but pretty good. Cool, cool. Uh, so those are like, the eight from this past week. And as I said, uh, I, I would maybe say like Wild Guitar, Ishtar, Super Dave. Red Orchid, probably none of those have much relation of any kind to horror. Yeah. But, you know, 2010, you got a ghost story thing. Piranha yeah. 2 and Scream 2 are certainly horror. Clockwork Orange. Uh, Clockwork I, Orange is... Dystopia. It's close enough to horror that I think it would count. Maybe, like, it's, it's a future dystopia. But then, of course, uh, as I said, because... We're going into Horror Month. If none of those are really jumping out to you, I'd say anything from the past two weeks would be fine for a horror title. Okay, well, I'll have a look here because, uh, because yeah, none of those really are jumping out at me. I would want to do Scream 1 before doing Scream 2. Well, that is one of the options if you want to uh, do yeah, that. Yeah, I'm seeing that. Uh, I'm actually looking, but I might have to... Oh, here we go. Um, <laughs> Child's Play 3 was the one that was like a big deal for the video nasties. And that one that we watched, that was the one, wasn't it? That is the one. And that's the one where uh, Andy is sent off to military college. And uh, it has the completely insane conclusion where for some reason there is an amusement park next to the firing range where they're having. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's, that's a well, crazy movie. As Sound of Fury teaches us, you can have a firing range anywhere. Oh, sure. You just <laughs> got to have the desire to shoot a gun in an enclosed space. And I've never seen a Chucky before. Yeah. And uh, yeah, let's do this one. I want to see if it's... Uh, I, I mean, I think you've already said it's not as nasty as the nasties say it is. No, not nearly. I, there's nothing even that you would censor if you played it on TV. <laughs> wow. 
Still yeah. counts as horror, though? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a slasher movie. Uh, there okay. is a part where someone gets uh, exploded with a grenade that I think is hilarious. Uh, yeah, cool. All right, yeah, let's do Child's Play 3. So we enter the spooky stacks. I'm very excited about this. And uh, I'd like to just, since we are not going to do much in the way of uh, additions, uh, I'm not going to talk about new additions mm-hmm. this week for sure. Uh, yeah. We'll maybe just like give some quick points of interest for stuff that might be added in future. But I thought okay. we might uh, spend a little bit of time exploring the stacks. And first, I, I will say that uh, a new, as we say, uh, you know, the rules don't normally don't apply in the same ways in the spooky stacks. So uh, for all the major slasher series, which I've watched all of in the past little bit so like nightmare on elm street friday the 13th halloween i have just one as a representative there consider it to be an open choice to choose any in the series you'd like at any point okay um all right so yeah oh wow this is actually this is a huge list holy shit yeah let's talk about a few points of interest uh up here we've got aliens which i'm most likely going to watch i'm going to go through probably that whole series again this month I would like to do, I would like to do aliens. Oh man, but I wanted, well, aliens, they're, they're both good, but they're different from one another. Alien is by far my favorite. I've been back and forth on aliens personally, because it's much more of an action movie in that. Oh, and, totally. And it doesn't have that same Kubrickian hermetically sealed cozy space the way uh, uh, alien does either. Yeah, it has Paul Reiser as a corporate shill. He's great. It's um, really good. Yep. Yeah, uh, that's a good one. Uh, oh, Mulholland Drive is on here. Mulholland Drive is a David oh. Lynch. I feel that's essential as a horror feature. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Oh, you you wanted me to watch them, the Ant movie. Oh, uh, that one's really fun. That's a, that's a pretty classic giant monster movie. So we got yeah. that in there somewhere. The original Video Nasties. Yep, the, the first one of those. Uh, Jaws would be another series that I would consider as, you know, I, I did watch all of those. So you can pick any of those. Uh, oh. we, we got Dracula there, the 1931 Todd Browning, the original first of the Universal Monsters. Uh, that is representing the complete Universal Monsters cycle, because I do have a set of all of those. Oh, I see Psycho 2 is on here. Would Psycho 1 be up for grabs? Because I absolutely, that. yeah. Oh. So that that would be in the Hitchcock box. So what I have there for it right now is Shadow of a Doubt. But uh, you know, we we could uh, jump around in that box. All right. Well, hold on. What's Shadow of a Doubt then? So From Shadow of a Doubt forty three. That's his next one, and that's uh, Joseph Cotton as uh, a serial killer, basically. Like he he's a lonely hearts killer who who's sort of like a widow maker, right? Okay. And and he has just killed someone and he's kind of like waiting until the heat dies down. So he's staying with uh, his relatives and his favorite niece. And it's sort of told from her point of view as she slowly realizes that maybe her uncle is a serial killer. Like she starts to suspect and see all of the little signs that like he is actually this killer. And he starts to suspect that she suspects. Mm. Oh, I see another Phantom of the Mall movie. Did did we That's, do Phantom of the Mall or did we just talk about it? 
we just we watched it and we talked about it briefly having uh watched it with uh tony but no we we uh have not covered it oh, okay okay so that's the same one yeah oh oh rikio rikio which is like rikio <laughs> uh, male prisoner seven or whatever it is yeah splatter kung fu too just like totally wild yeah um, uh, oh, Scanners, I'd say, is also another of those. You can pick any of them. Uh, although there, I'd say you should see probably Scanners first. Although maybe Scanner Cop would be okay, too. <laughs> yeah. You can uh, probably jump to that one. Ooh, Deranged is on here. That's the Ed Gein <clears throat> one, yeah? That is. The the Deranged bio, or the, the Ed Gein biopic starring Roberts Blossom, who's the old man in Home Alone, who Kevin is oh. kind of creeped out by. But who turns out to have a good heart. (laughs) Death Curse of Tartu is uh, the next William Griffay, uh, who who did uh, Sting of Death. So that's his mummy movie. Oh, cool. Uh, Uh, Oh, I I should highlight Stalker. Great Russian Soviet art uh, psychological horror thing that's based on this uh, novel called Roadside Picnic. And the, the, the concept being that Aliens have landed on Earth and they left this area behind that has all of these reality warping properties because of kind of crap they sort of left behind by accident. Oh. With, with the idea being that, like, Earth was just a roadside picnic stop for them and they kind of left some crap behind and it's incredibly toxic and dangerous to people. But, like, some of it is also, like, super technology that if you bring out, you can sell for a lot of money. Okay. So I think there's I don't know if it's this stalker or something else, but there's like a video game series based on it. Yeah, I think it is based on this because like the idea is stalker is this guy who leads you into the area uh, who who knows how to avoid some of the traps. But like the way it's told is in this abstract fashion that doesn't really explain any of that background. Uh, I I just more know about it because I've read the novel. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Yeah, really cool. uh, Incredibly a uh, beautiful looking movie, but very intense and strange. Oh my God. Birdemic is on here. Birdemic. <laughs> One of the worst movies I've ever seen. Insanely bad. Uh, so, and, and I guess also, <laughs> also in the Hitchcock box, there would be the birds. Oh yeah. Right. Right. Well, I, shit, <laughs> there's so many, uh, well, hell, why don't we do this uh, Shadow of a Doubt movie? Because uh, right, cool. Because the only Hitchcock I've seen so far is uh, Saboteur, which is one I hadn't heard of, and that one was great. So let's yeah. do another one I haven't heard of. Uh, this one rips. This is like pretty popular. This is one of his uh, best loved early pictures. Uh, so yeah, that should be fun. So uh, I believe we're doing uh, Shadow of a Doubt and Child's Play three. Was it? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what we went with. Cool, cool. Uh, I'm very excited to be entering spooky season. So, uh, yeah, any any last thoughts before we close out for this week? I am afraid, Jay. I am <laughs> afraid of the spookiness, Jay. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, everyone, and uh, stay spooky. <laughs>